Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good morning, everybody. My name's Don. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm really grateful to be here this morning. I'm I'm not only grateful, but I was joking around with Lee uh, right before I got up here. And I'm always stunned when anybody takes part of a beautiful day or sometimes all of a beautiful day if you have the fortitude to sit through all of it to to, um, to, to go with me on a journey through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, a lot of other reasons I'm grateful to be here. I get to see some folks that I love a lot that I don't get to see a whole lot and just real glad to be here. And what I'm scheduled to do today is uh, kind of go through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first thing I want to say is I am not a teacher. Uh, I've always been taught that there weren't any teachers in Alcoholics Anonymous. Over the years, I've seen some folks who seem like they might want to be teachers uh, and uh, just in my opinion, you understand, uh, and I've never particularly wanted anything that they had. Uh, a logical question that comes to my mind is who in the world I think I am to sit up here and talk about steps to other people. Uh, I know who I am. I'm a hopeless, pitiful drunk that by the grace of God I'm able to live a day at a time without alcohol or drugs and try to be of a little use in this world. Why I'm here is real simple. Somebody asked me. Uh, I, I have never in my life said, hey, you know, why don't you guys uh, bring me so-and-so and have me talk or have me go through the steps or something. <laughs> I always get asked, and, and I don't know why. Um, my original sponsor, who was a fellow by the name of Cherry from Nashville, Tennessee, um, uh, a lot of the things that you're here today came to me through Cherry. Um, a lot of them that I thought were original to Cherry, I have since found out came from somewhere else. Usually in the big book somewhere where I'd over where I'd overlooked it, but frequently from uh, from Chuck. Uh, Cherry was a big fan of Chuck's, and and Cherry passed a lot of Chuck stuff on to me. But when I was a couple of months sober. Um, I, I had become sure that Hollywood would be very interested in my dramatic tale and, um, you know, that my door would be beaten down by people wanting to hear it. Of course, nobody asked me to talk for almost two years, but uh, but at, at two months sober, I was just sure that would happen. So I went to Cherry to kind of get a jump on the problems that were coming uh, 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 of how I would be able to call things out and how I would know what obligations in AA I was supposed to accept and what obligations I was not supposed to accept. And Cherry said, Don, you usually ask me questions that I have to tell you things that are kind of vague, you know, like pray about that or go home, get your pencil and piece of paper out and draw a line down the middle of the paper and after you pray, write the reasons to do one way on one side of the line, the reasons for the other on the other, said, but you have finally asked me a question that I can answer specifically. 
He said, you won't have a bit of trouble knowing when you're supposed to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous because somebody will ask you. And, and I've kind of tried to live, live by that, and it, and, and it served me pretty well. Um, I think it's kind of customary in this area to, to give you dry date in your home group before you, before you start. Uh, I guess the theory is if a person doesn't give it, they may not have one. Um, and my sobriety date is April the 9th of 1981. And my home group is the Calm Down Group, um, which is a Wednesday afternoon discussion that meets at 5 o'clock at a little clubhouse right across the river from downtown Louisville. And unlike my friend Lorraine, I did name the Calm Down Group uh, because by Wednesday I, I usually really need to, to calm down. Talk a little bit about what we're going to do today. Um, I don't have a speech to give. Um, I'm not going to talk about studying the steps, and I really, really don't want to say anything controversial at all. Um, and I'm very serious about that. You know, to me, one of the most important parts of the big book is Bill saying that nothing would please us so much as to write a volume that had no controversy, stirred up no controversy whatsoever. Uh, controversy has not seemed to be helpful to me in my recovery. Uh, the big book tries very hard to stay away from it. That's why I rarely instead of never. That's why in the whole hundred six, first 164 pages, Bill never called alcoholism a disease. Did Bill believe it was a disease? Certainly he did. But that was even more controversial in the 30s than it is now. And Bill was able to convey everything that he needed to convey by calling it an illness or a malady or a disorder without running the risk of controversy and turning somebody's ears off to the recovery message by using a controversial word. So I, I try to live my life that way. I fail sometimes as I fail at so many th things, but I really hope that I don't say anything controversial. All I can share, and I never thought about doing this till eight or ten years ago. Somebody said, hey, Don, why don't you go through the steps? And because we had been sponsored, I said, okay, uh, we'll do that. And the only thing that I knew to do then is the same thing that I know to do this morning. And all I can share is what I have shared over the years with people that I sponsor. And I've been so blessed because I've been able to sponsor a uh, an awful lot of guys over the years. I want to tell you about my success at sponsoring guys. First, I don't have any. But then I don't have any failure either. It's such a beautiful gift that I know that I'm not powerful enough to make the difference between somebody getting drunk and staying sober. I've got sponsees that this very weekend are out talking at conferences, and people are just throwing gardenias at them, saying, you know, you're great, you ought to be a guru. I've got other, sp other sponsees that are in graveyards this morning and back in penitentiaries on account of going back to use it. I am sad about the folks that haven't made it, and I'm real happy for the folks that are doing well but I don't feel any pride about the ones that are doing well. 
I don't feel like I deserve, and I don't take any credit for it, and I don't take any responsibility for the dead ones and the ones that are back out there because I'm simply not that important. And to the best of my ability and knowledge, I told and, more importantly, tried to show every one of those guys the same thing. So all I've got to share with anybody is what I've shared with the people that I sponsored, and that's what we're gonna, um, that's what we're gonna do this morning. Another thing that I expect you'll hear an awful lot of is that I'm gonna talk a whole lot about what I have done. Um, I'll probably talk a lot more about what I have done than any great spiritual enlightenment or burning bushes that I've seen. There's a good reason for that because I hadn't seen any burning bushes. Okay? Now in saying that, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. Um, because I know some of us do. You know, some of us, but Bill Wilson had the, you know, the dramatic experience. Uh, if I'd kept on waiting for that, I'd been in a, in a grave somewhere for way over 20 years. Uh, I, I haven't had the burning bushes. I'm not going to talk about what I've learned. Most of what I learned about AA and about recovery, I learned while I was dying of alcoholism, and I don't think that knowledge did me a bit of good whatsoever. I was sponsored, and I believe with all my heart, that sobriety and recovery is only a tiny little bit a learning process. I had enough knowledge to stay sober a day at a time the rest of my life without ever drinking <laughs> without drinking or drugging um, for at least two years before I could get sober. What was killing me wasn't what I knew and didn't know. What was killing me was what I was doing and what I was not doing. Another thing that I, I usually try to say because I've, I've had some people and I sure do understand how they get that impression, um, tell me later that they got the impression that I was saying something along the lines of stuff your feelings, you know, it doesn't matter, don't pay any attention to your feelings. I'm not saying stuff your feelings. Uh, I've found that these 12 steps give me the most wonderful vehicle that I've ever been able to find to look my feelings right straight in the eye and say, yes, there you are. What I am saying is that by the grace of God, I have learned that I do not have to build a shrine to my feelings. You see, all my life when I had a feeling, my behavior automatically fell in behind that feeling, and I went to work on you to get your behavior to fall in behind my feeling. Because, you see, a very big part of my illness, of that disordered ego that is my alcoholism, that's the root of it. The book says self-centeredness self is the root, and, and Cherry explained to me that what that means is the first thing wrong with me is, is a disorder of my ego. And everything else is, has flowed from that. And on account of that disorder of my ego, without divine intervention, I am so self-centered that the obsession on myself the obsession with how I feel, the obsession with how I believe I stack up against other people in this world is so great that it causes a pain and an emptiness down inside me that I can't stand. And I have to do something about that. And <clears throat> right at the core of that illness is this insane conviction that what I think, feel, and believe is the center of the universe. 
My Lord, we can't have little Donnie doing something he doesn't feel like doing. You know, it'd just be awful. And at, at 22 years sober, I got to tell you, when, as I frequently do, I hit those crossroads where that little spark of the divine in me knows just exactly where the next stitch ought to go or where it ought not go. And my brain is telling me that if I don't do the exact opposite, it'll be a disaster. <clears throat> in other words, I get to the point where I don't feel like doing the right thing. Every fiber in my being wants to do something like call up one of you guys and aggravate you about me not feeling like doing right. And what can we do to make me feel like doing right? Because that's based on the premise that, my Lord, we can't have little Donnie doing something he doesn't feel like doing. You know, it'd just be against nature. And besides that, even worse, it would make me a hypocrite. Now, we alcoholics are real peculiar about hypocrisy. You know, after we've done our inventories and we've stayed sober a while and done our amends, we can come up with a, a tasteful and subtle smile about uh, past larceny and past adultery and that sort of thing. And if a homicide is long enough ago and the circumstances were just right, we can get a little lift of the corner of the mouth out of that. But my God, we don't want to be hypocrites. You know, it's just the worst thing in the world that we do something we don't feel like doing. Uh, so, so I have aggravated you folks to death when I don't feel like doing the right thing. I have worried sponsors to distraction about it. I have prayed until I felt like I was going to get blue in the face from praying about not feeling like doing right and something make me feel like doing right so I could do right. I have spent a bunch of money on outside counseling, sober to try to get me to feel like doing right so I can do right. And I just really hate this. But the only therapy that has ever done me any good with regard to making me feel like doing right is going on doing right for a feel like it. And I just absolutely hate that. Uh, and, and so what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the actions being what have well, what have saved and do save me a day at a time, a minute at a time, that it's not what's going on in the head. I'm not saying stuff our feelings. I'm just saying, hey, I can't let them be the most important thing in the universe. See, that's right at the core of all of it, is that without divine intervention, the way I feel is the most important thing in the universe. And that's at the very core of everything that's wrong with me, that ego disorder. That's at the very core of all the things I did that destroyed so much and very nearly killed me, is letting how I feel be the most important thing in this universe. Uh, I want you to know when I'm up here talking about the steps that I am so imperfect that there are times when I think I'm so unworthy to be doing this. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, I called up Tom B. from up around Cleveland, who's been my sponsor for the last 13 years, and uh, uh, said, Tom, Tom's been sober uh, a little over 40 years now, I think. Um, and I said, Tom, man, I'm just going through a bad spot. It's one of those gray periods, you know, I, I feel like I'm disconnected. I, I feel hypocritical when I get up and talk to people, when I'm talking to people I sponsor and that sort of thing. Tom talked to me a little bit about what I was doing. It turned out I was going on doing what I needed to do, and he shared with me, I have periods where I go through exactly the same thing. 
He said, Don, our helpfulness to other people isn't based on how we feel. Our helpfulness to other people is based on what we do. So all I've been able to do on spiritual on a spiritual journey, and the spiritual journey is the most important aspect of my life, no, no contest, nothing else is even close, but the best I've ever been able to do is stumble a few steps in the right direction, get knocked down by self-will, momentarily forget that I ever did a third step, forget that I ever did a seventh step, forget that, there's any, that there is any such thing as an eleventh step to live on. Just get knocked in the dust by self-will and say, oops, mom, dad, I fouled up again, excuse me. Dust myself off and stumble another couple of steps in the right direction. And I want to tell you, that's not something that belongs just to my early sobriety. Right today, there are days when I do that process at least 100 times. The starting over. I've got a buddy who says that the most important word in all the 12 steps is in the, in the 10th step. It's continued. And, you know, for years I thought that every time that I got knocked over by self-will and had to start over, that that was an interruption of my spiritual growth. I guess after I got sober and, began, and became awake, and to me a spiritual awakening is real simple. It's literal. It's being awake to spiritual things, being aware of them because I was comatose to them until I got sober and began to go my journey through the steps. But I thought that every one of those lapses and getting up and starting over was an interruption of my spiritual growth, and I know now that that's the only spiritual growth of which I'm capable. And it turns out that my God doesn't require perfection from me. He or she doesn't even really require consistency. My God is tickled to death with persistence. That's stumbling in the right direction. So if I say things, and, and sometimes we, we do because we're trying to cover material, you know, in a situation like this, that leads you to believe that I've done something perfectly, don't believe it. I'm just saving time by not telling you all the warts on, on what I've done. Uh, I don't believe really we're going to learn anything today that will help any of us. But I do think that if what happens today motivates us to action, that we may be rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence on account of what happens. Um, and, you know, the big book is right along those lines. Some of the things that the big book says uh, is that it tells us that this book, the purpose of the book, is to tell folks precisely how we have recovered. Not what we learn, not what spiritual growth we got, but precisely how we have covered, what we've done. The book also says that we will specifically tell you what we have to do to recover, not what we have to learn, not what we have to absorb. It says that it will give us clear-cut directions. It says if we're prompted to action, not philosophical enlightenment, but to action, that we'll be rocketed into a fourth dimension. And to me, really importantly, it says that the spiritual life is not a theory. I have to live it. My spirituality isn't what I know. It isn't what I think. It isn't what I feel. My feeling all centered and so connected with God that we're going to join hands and go out floating through the universe and merge with the town, to me, is not spirituality. Spirituality is returning that telephone call when I don't want to return it. 
Spirituality is making up the bed when it needs to be made up, and I don't want to do it. Spirituality is showing up where I've committed to be, even though I don't want to go and I don't feel like it. That's spirituality. And what it means to me when it says that, that's what it means when the book says that the spiritual life is not a, is not a theory that we have to live it. Another thing that Cherry Carpenter, uh, impressed on me is that knowledge without action is not useless. It's worse than useless. Because once we know the right thing to do and don't do it, we're in far worse shape than we were before we knew what we were supposed to do. Um, for that reason, I prefer to call what we're doing today a step-use discussion rather than a step-study or a seminar or that sort of thing. Uh, so, and again, I don't care what anybody else calls it. Lee can label it whatever he wants to, and I won't have any reaction to that. Uh, and I'm so grateful that God's put me in that position of neutrality. Uh, in fact, that's been a huge gift that I've had, and I, I hope that I can share some of that gift with you guys today. In the time that I've been sober, I don't believe that I have had one single emotional reaction to, for instance, how somebody else interprets and applies a tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've certainly seen a lot of things that, you know, my thought process is that would not be the right way for me to do it. But I don't get into the anger. I don't get into the resentment. I don't get into the, my God, I have to change that. You know, if, if, if I don't tell them they are wrong, who will tell them? You know, I've got to tell them. Uh, and my God, it's my mission to save Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, the traditions are awfully important, and I believe that each of our individual adherence to it is, is truly, in the final analysis, as important as the steps. So I'm, I'm a big traditions man, but I'm a big traditions man for me. I'm not a big traditions man on what you ought to do as a tradition. And it got clear to me real early in sobriety that the way things are today, nothing can happen that there, as long as I'm alive, that there won't be enough folks that I know and know how to contact that are involved in recovery that I can have the fellowship and the meetings that I need to stay sober. There's only one person who can destroy Alcoholics Anonymous for me, and that's me. And one way I can do that, you know... Our code is love and tolerance that tells us that in the 10th step, um, love and tolerance of others, actually. And sometimes I think we may get it in our heads that the code really is something like, say, responsibility and accountability and that sort of thing. Uh, responsibility and accountability and efficiency are great, and they certainly are components of spirituality. But the book says that the code is love and tolerance of others. And I've had to learn a really nasty lesson about tolerance that I didn't like worth a hoot. In fact, still don't like it sometimes. I had to learn that I had a high threshold for aggravation confused with tolerance. In other words, if what you were doing mildly irritated me, but I was able to say, oh, gee, let old Joe or Sue go ahead and do that. That's all right. They're wrong, but I'm going to be big about this and not bother them. And it didn't really bother me much. I thought that was tolerance. That's not tolerance. That's a high threshold for aggravation. 
tolerance doesn't even become an issue until I find what you're doing absolutely intolerable. Until I find it absolutely intolerable and feel called by God to straighten you out for the good of the world. That's when tolerance becomes important. That's when I've gone beyond the high threshold for aggravation. And those are the things that I must tolerate if I'm going to have any peaceful sobriety. Um, We're going to treat the big book this morning as not a philosophy book, uh, but as an an instruction manual for actions. Um, We're not going to approach Alcoholics Anonymous. We're not going to approach the steps as a self-help program. If I could have helped myself, I would have before I ever got sober. Uh, this is this is not a self-help deal. I've been taught, and I, and that's been my experience. It's also not a selfish deal. Now I understand why people sometimes say that AA is a selfish program, and and there's real valid point in there. The point being that if I don't do what's necessary to protect my sobriety, then I'm not going to be any good to myself or anybody else. So I'm not knocking people who say that. I'm saying that my book tells me that my illness is selfishness and self-centeredness. That that is my illness, is selfishness and self-centeredness. I can't effectively treat that with more obsession on self. You know, and I've tried so hard to do that in sobriety. I will dress it up in spiritual clothing and say, surely this will work because I love to obsess on me. You know, it's just my favorite pastime is obsessing on me. Always has been. Uh, So I'll dress it up in spiritual clothing and say, well, this can't possibly be obsessing on me because I've got it all dressed up in spiritual clothing. Or then I'll dress it up in psychological clothing, you know, and so I can obsess on me. And it never works. When I'm trying to... When I'm trying to treat an illness that is self-centeredness with obsession on self, I'm trying to put out a fire with gasoline. It simply doesn't work. My illness is self-centeredness. My recovery is reaching out to others. My recovery is praying to love, comfort, and understand you rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood by you. My recovery is trying to do God's will rather than making me centered rather than making me okay now I'm not saying we don't do things to take care of ourselves certainly we do because we have no use to anybody else if we are not if we don't do those things but that doesn't need to be my focus uh, it has worked for me real well to basically do it the way Chuck Chamberlain said and did and that is that if I'll try to take care of God's kids, try to help you guys do what you need to have done for free and for fun because I want to, that that's my job. And taking care of me is not my job. That's God's job. And if I'll do my job of trying to reach out and take care of you guys, God will never fail to do his or her job. God will take care of me, and that's the way it's worked for me. Uh, You know... The book tells us that uh, a main purpose is to find the higher power that will solve our problems. My my friend Bob uh, B. from up in St. Paul, Minnesota, tells a little thing that I love. Um, He says that farmers don't grow things. Farmers create uh, an atmosphere in which growth can take place and God grows things. Doctors don't heal anybody. 
doctors create an atmosphere in which healing will take place and God heals. And that's exactly what I hope we're able to do through these steps and what I believe does happen is that through that we create an atmosphere in which God will do the healing and God will take us on spiritual growth and and that's how the healing happens. Um, the big book and the steps may or may not be the only way for you or for anybody else. One of the important things about Bill trying not to be controversial in the book is it specifically says, hey, we're not claiming to be the only way on anything. That To make that claim would be absolutely antagonistic to the whole tenor of the book, to the whole tenor of recovery. It would be arrogant. There would be no humility in it. It would be controversial. Uh, it would stir up argument. It would cause resentment. Um, so I don't know. I know that the steps are the only thing that have ever worked for me. And that's all I can share with you guys. Frankly, I don't know a whole lot of them, but I do know some folks that have been sober a long, long time that believe they're alcoholics, and from their history, it looks like to me if I were going to make the call on anybody being an alcoholic that I'd probably suggest that they were, that doing just fine without going to AA meetings, without doing the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I am a kind of alcoholic for whom that will not work. I don't even know whether you are an alcoholic or not, much less what kind you are. I'll also tell you that my observation has been that those folks that can do it without the fellowship, without the steps, are very few and very far between, in my observation, that most alcoholics, this winds up being, for us, the only game in town. It certainly is for me. Um, I won't talk about dysfunctional families. I won't talk about inner children. Um, I believe with all my heart that when the book says on page 133 that God filled this world with great doctors and counselors and we should not hesitate to use them if appropriate, that that's exactly right, and I believe in that. Uh, I have sponsees all the time say, Don, my doctor wants me to take this. What should I do? Say, my God, man, I'm a lawyer. Do what your doctor says. I don't know anything about what you're supposed to do. Take, you know, take it the way the doctor recommends it. And, you know, as long as you've told the doctor what you are and what your situation is, I'm not going to practice medicine, for goodness sakes. You know, you, 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 you do what they tell you to do, and you do it the way that they, uh, the, that they say doing it. However, here's what I do believe. I believe that if we try to take an easier, softer way by taking our alcoholism to the doctors or to the counselors and saying, treat this, that it's a whole lot like taking a jellyfish to an orthopedic surgeon. It's not the surgeon's fault. There's just nothing in that jellyfish that they can work on. And I believe that's the way it is with us. And I also believe when we're floundering around with self-help books and, and counseling and that sort of thing, instead of doing these first nine steps in order to reach a state of recovery and after that living on 10, 11, and 12 every day, when we're doing that instead of the steps, I believe that we're standing on a whale's back fishing for menace. Because I found for me... All the power in the universe is in these steps. These steps, when I, when I will do them right, plug me into a source of power that I just was unable to imagine. Can't begin to comprehend it today. 
But there's truly magic in these steps. And the easier, softer ways don't do it on my alcoholism. Now, if we've done the steps, we've done them the way the book says, and we've got problems left, hey, go to it. You know, that's what the doctors and counselors are there for. But trying to use them as a substitute for the steps on alcoholism, I've never seen that be effective. I've told you I've seen other folks stay sober other ways than I have. But I've never seen one single person stay reasonably, comfortably sober by substituting the self-help or the counseling or that sort of thing for the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous for their alcoholism. Um, Talk a little bit before we get into the steps themselves about the difference in the program and the fellowship. And and we all, you know, we hear those terms and we know there's a difference, but they're really, really important to me. Um, I was, was taught, and I believe, that I can be going to 10 meetings a week, going to conferences all over the country and talking the best AA that you ever saw, and all of my friends be members of Alcoholics Anonymous and not be in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And be a member of the fellowship on any day I've got a desire to stop drinking. Doesn't even have to be an honest desire. You know, any day I've got a desire to stop drinking and be a member of the fellowship. But I believe with all my heart, unless I'm somewhere in the process of doing the first nine steps the way the book says do them in order to reach a state of recovery or having done that, I'm living every day on 10, 11, and 12, I'm not even in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's real simple. Why? Nothing else in the first 164 pages is called a program for recovery, except the steps. It says, here are the steps we took that are suggested as a program for recovery. And I believe if I try to latch on to the fellowship like that, without doing the steps, without getting in the program for recovery, that I might stay dry a week or I might stay dry 30 years. But if I do it that way, I'll have, have no absolutely no healing of what's really wrong that disordered ego, that inability to be comfortable inside myself, except just exactly as I do those steps. Uh, I was taught that uh, the steps work on alcoholism like penicillin works on an infection. That if I've got an infection that's going to kill me if it's not treated, but will respond to penicillin, I don't need to understand all the ins and outs of my infection. In fact, I don't even need to really believe that that silly little little infection could cause such terrible things to be wrong with magnificent me. And I don't need to understand one single thing about how penicillin works in the human body. Don't even need to believe that that little bottle of pills can take care of what's wrong with me. And here's the kicker. I don't even need to want to take the pills. If I've got the infection... And I take the pills as directed, and that was underscored very strongly for me as directed. If I take the pills as directed, I'm going to get just fine, thank you. And I believe, I know that my experience with these steps has been precisely that. They are the prescription for for my alcoholism. They also are, are clearly called and are a process of ego deflation. After doing the first nine steps, our ego will be deflated, but... The human ego is the most resilient quantity in the universe, perhaps, because it always reasserts itself. And that's why we have to have 10, 11, and 12 to live on every day. Um, when I first got sober, I would, I would talk about my program, 
um, Cherry would, would lovingly correct me. And, you know, there aren't many old sponsors who were as mean and as abrupt as they get the rap from being from the podium. Uh, let, let me let you in on, on a secret. The reason that you hear from the podium so much about these overbearing dictatorial sponsors who said things, you know, wham, 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 and you must do that, is because when we're up here talking, we don't want to sound like we're preaching. We don't want to sound like we know something or something that you got to do. So we blame it on some poor old sponsor that's moldering in a grave after staying sober 40 years and dying. Uh, some of us respond to that kind of harsh treatment. Uh, most of us don't. I wouldn't have. Uh, I would have died with that kind of treatment. And although uh, Cherry Carpenter certainly pulled no punches with me, and he had a reputation of being, you know, right down the line, uh, strict on the big book, uh, Cherry didn't didn't talk to me that way. He didn't abuse me. He didn't make me feel less than. Uh, but <coughs> but uh, at any rate, one thing he would do anytime I would say my program, he would say, Don, your program got you here. He said, there's not your program and my program, there's the program and it's numbered, one through twelve. So he didn't like me to talk about my program <clears throat> because my program is not the solution, my program was the problem. Um, he also told me that the steps are called the steps for a reason. You know, they could have called them the 12 propositions, the 12 tenets, you know, just on and on. But but they're not. They're called the steps. And the uh, reason for that, I was told, is that in a conventional staircase, step two actually has to have step one because step one forms the base on which step two rests. And also it doesn't make any sense to have a staircase with a... a First step, third step, eleventh step, twelfth step, and no steps in between. Uh, he also told me that I needed to do the steps in order, uh, and he explained because he knew that I was into intellectual nuances, that the way that we knew we were supposed to do them in order was that they had been numbered. Uh, and uh, a little story that I heard in early sobriety really helps me to understand why it's important for me to do the steps in order and stay where I am and focus on it. And the kind of problem I'm addressing, and, and all of us have heard it, and most of us have worried about it ourselves, my God, I can't do this fourth step because I can't make amends to those people. Well, my God, we have five steps from making amends to anybody. We may get drunk, we may die, we may decide just not to do it. You know, uh, the fourth step has nothing to do with making amends, and yet... Things like worrying about the ninth step can keep us from doing the fourth step. Also, a lot of the steps have more than one part, like the eighth step is clearly a two-part step. Number one, we made a list of people, uh, of persons we had harmed, and number two, became willing to make amends to them all. Uh, I don't need to be worrying about the second part of step eight when I'm doing the first part. Because if I'm worrying about that, I may not get everybody on the list that needs to be on the list. There may be some kind of process that weeds somebody out. I need to stay where I am in the bed. And the best little story that pointed that out to me that I ever heard had to do with an alcoholic that had a flat tire out on an old dark country road late at night by themselves. They got out and looked, and they didn't have a jack in the car. Had a spare tire, but not a jack. So I, oh, my Lord, what am I going to do? And looks way up in the distance and sees this little light way down the road and says, uh, 
Well, I walk up there, maybe it's a farmhouse. So the, the committee goes to work inside the alcoholic's head, you know. What if it's not even a house? What if it's just a light on a barn or something and gets to where and see it's a house? Well, what if there's nobody home? Uh, what if the home won't answer the door this time of night? Uh, well, what if I get up there and they answer the door and, uh, and they don't have a jack? Uh, what if I get up there and they answer the door and they have a jack, but they won't let me borrow it? Pray they won't bring it back. And, uh, what if I'm, if they have a jack and, and I borrow it and I walk all the way back to the car and it won't fit? And by this time the alcoholic's knocking on the door and the old farmer comes to the door and says, yes, can I help you? Alcoholic says, I didn't want to borrow your damn jack anyway. Uh, but <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that, that's what I need to bear in mind is I need to stay where I am in these steps. And incidentally, um, again, I'm not, I hope I don't get on a single soapbox. I don't feel only like I'm on any soapboxes and don't want to be on any. I sometimes say I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, not much anymore. Um, when I got sober 22 years ago in Nashville, Tennessee, it was just sort of, I mean, it was the order of the day. You referred to yourself as a recovering alcoholic. And to hear somebody say recovered alcoholic just caused you to gasp, you know, that they were so egotistical and it was so, uh, so, 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 so wrong to do that. Uh, Cherry explained to me that if I wanted to call myself recovering alcoholic, that was fine. But he wanted me to understand that the book talked about recovered alcoholics. Well, by that time, I had become quite a big book scholar, so I said, well, Cherry, where did they hide that in the big book? He said, well, the first place they hid it, Don, is in the subtitle of the book. I didn't even know the book had a subtitle. The subtitle is the story of how many, how many thousands, um, thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Said so next place they hid it was two or three times in the first paragraph to the foreword to the first edition. You know where he was talking about we a hundred over a hundred men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body, uh, and he also told me to Cherry's theory was that you only did steps one through nine one time. Okay, now again, no soapbox, no big deal. I'm just sharing with you what was shared with me and the way I choose to view things. The reason that's no big deal is that everything that we do in 1 through 9 is included in 10, 11, and 12, is included in the maintenance steps. For example, in Mass Sobriety, I've done more than a half dozen inventories that came right out of page 64 through 70, and if you looked at them, you would say, that is a fourth-step inventory that Don has done. But in my mind, it was not. It was 10th step work of continuing to take personal inventory. Part of my morning meditation is, is reading the third step prayer and reading the seventh step prayer. But in my mind, I am not redoing the, uh, rather third step prayer and seventh step prayer. In my mind, I'm not redoing the third step. I'm not redoing the seventh step. I'm doing 11th step work. I'm continuing to, or I'm seeking to improve my conscious contact with God as, as I understand God. Uh, now, it took me years sober to understand why Cherry even bothered to make that distinction, but I understand it real well now. And they're, they're the same thing. The recovered alcoholic 
as opposed to recovering distinction and the fact that you only do the first nine steps once, then you live on the other, other three. Cherry knew that if I had the opportunity to view myself as some sort of poor little handicapped cripple that was living in a world where those folks out there don't understand me, I'm an alcoholic, you know, and I have to take care of myself. He knew that 15 years sober, I'd be sitting around a clubhouse somewhere playing euchre and talking about the fact that those folks out there in the real world didn't understand me because I was different. I was a poor little crippled alcoholic having to just stay mired down in the mud the rest of my life. He knew if he gave me that crutch, I'd grab it. He wanted me to understand that once I'd done these first nine steps the way the book says do them, and then as long as I was living on 10, 11, and 12 a day at a time the way the book said do it, that I was at least as capable of dealing with life on life's terms as the average person who never had alcoholism. And if I wasn't, one of two things was wrong. I needed to go back and do some repair work on my steps or had something wrong other than alcoholism where I perhaps needed to look for outside help other than that. But if my problem's alcoholism, having done those steps, as long as I may do the actions that maintain my spiritual condition a day at a time, and he wanted me to understand that I was as well equipped to deal with life as anybody. Um, as we go through the steps, I, I'm going to suggest what I used to think was the silliest statement I had ever heard in my life. You know, there's a great big old thick book that some people call the big, big book. And I will tell you going in that I don't go to church and I do not consider myself a religious person. But I, I also don't consider myself a non-religious person and I sure do try to live on a spiritual basis. But, but before I got sober, there were a lot of things in that big, big book that I thought were really stupid. In fact, one of my favorite pastimes was arguing with people that believed in that crap, you know, uh, to, uh, to prove my intellectual superiority. But, but of all the stupid things in that book, the silliest thing was to come as a little child. That you could only see the kingdom of heaven or however it's worded by coming as a little child. I want to tell you that that's one of the most important things in my life today. Because these steps are not an intellectual process. Not at all. Trying to fix me was not new when I got sober. I had spent my whole life trying to fix me. As far as inventorying, my God, there was no subject that interest, interested me nearly as much as me. I spent so much energy trying to figure me out, what made me tick, what was wrong with me. So what the steps are for me, they're not taking a deep breath and starting over one more time trying to figure myself out and fix me. They are an exercise like a child doing a follow-the-dots drawing where you can't see the picture, you don't know what the picture is, but if that child will just go from dot to dot to dot to dot, the picture will emerge. And that's the way it works for me. I'll share... Oh, I made a terrible mess up here, but sorry. Um, I want to share one other thing with you. Cherry uh, talked to me about before we actually move into the steps themselves. Cherry, uh, as so many people's sponsors seem to have had, uh, Cherry actually did 
have an acquaintance with Bill Wilson, had had some conversations with him. And, and in one conversation that he had with Bill, Cherry later passed on to me, that Bill had said that about 95% of the people that get in Alcoholics Anonymous are content to go to their meetings and do the steps well enough to stay sober, function in their daily lives, be reasonably comfortable, and go on. But he said about 5% of the people want it all. About 5% really want it all. They really want to get everything that, that God will give us through these steps if we do it. They really want to have the peace. They really want the serenity. They really want to be helpful to other people. And I decided when Cherry told me that way over 20 years ago that it wouldn't be a bad thing to be a five percenter. Uh, I doubt, thank you, Pam. I doubt very seriously that I've succeeded, but I think it's been a very good thing for me to bear that in mind and, and have it as sort of an aspiration through my, through my sobriety. Um, another thing that uh, I will be going through today uh, has to do with the promises. And again, no controversy. I'm fine with calling the eighth and ninth step promises the promises. If I'm at a meeting and some somebody says, Don, will you get up and read the promises? I get up and read them as the promises. I don't take five minutes to enlighten my audience about the fact that they're not. But I do want to share with you, as, as many of you probably already know, uh, that Nobody ever meant for the eighth and ninth steps to be the promises. Apparently somebody counted them one time and decided you could argue that there are 12 of them. You can also argue that there are 13 of them, and you can argue that there are 11 of them. But the important thing is that this book is full of promises. And to me, the eighth and ninth step promises are not even the most beautiful. I mean, they are beautiful and they're wonderful. But as we go through the individual steps, I'll be referring us to the promises that are associated with the individual steps because this book is absolutely full of it. And as we get ready to actually go into the steps themselves, I want to go back one more time to, to Chuck Chamberlain. You know, Chuck Chamberlain said, that regardless of what it is, in fact, the example he used was shaving. You know, regardless if it's something that simple. If I will truly give my interest, attention, and love to it, it becomes the most interesting thing in the world. So I'm going to offer you that in approaching the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that if we give our interest, attention, and love to it, that magic will happen and it will become the most important thing in the world. Um, Okay, spend a few minutes talking about one and two, and then we'll take a break. And by the way, the, the format that I've got in mind for today, I have promised Lee uh, on a, a stack of Bibles practically that no session will exceed an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, should, I'm, I'm hoping that we have four sessions that are between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes with about a 10, 10 to 15 minute break between the first and second and the third and fourth session, and that ought to give us an easy hour and a half for lunch. Uh, <clears throat> steps one and two, um, I was taught and I believe, are different from the rest of the steps. And how they're different is that step, all the rest of the steps require some sort of action. But steps one and two don't really require action. Steps one and two rather require that I reach certain conclusions. Um, when I first began, and I, I have intentionally not 
mention my story today uh, because I'm going to be speaking later on in the weekend. I didn't want to belabor that, but but just so you you will know, I didn't get here because alcohol gave me the hiccups. Uh, I, I lost everything. I lost my professional license. I lost families. I lived on the street for almost a year and a half. Uh, I lost some bodily functions with a, through a terrible automobile accident. Uh, my finances were such that when I was three and a half years sober, my sponsor and my lawyer and I got together and decided that my finances had improved in three and a half years to the point where I could file a Chapter 11 bankruptcy without getting indicted. So it took me three and a half years to work up to bankruptcy, paying back uh, the type of bankruptcy that paid back every penny of, of what I owed. Uh, and I made the last payment on the financial wreckage in my past the month. I was, I was 15 years sober. Uh, so I, 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 I didn't, as I say, get here because it gave me the hiccups. In the period, two and a half year period before I got sober, I was in some sort of asylum, and I just used that term to lump them all in there, the treatment centers, the psychiatric hospitals, uh, 18 times in two and a half years. Um, so I, I was, uh, I, I, I lost a lot and rode this horse down just about as far as you can ride it. Um, now, a good half of those places I'm calling asylums had treatment programs based on the 12 steps. So I had, a, and, and by the way, I do want to tell you this, this ties in with the first step. See, I don't believe that an intellectual admission of alcoholism for me had anything at all to do with the first step. Because I had made that intellectual admission by the time I was in my mid-teens. And I was partly ashamed of that and I was partly proud of it. You know, there was just part of my specialness, you know, of that ocean of creativity inside me. And of course, I knew about of Ernest Hemingway and Winston Churchill and Hank Williams and Alexander the Great, you know, and those were just my brothers, you know, of, of, of alcoholism, just for, for, for folks who were wounded by their own understanding, you know. Uh, it was just uh, magnificent. And, and, and see, I thought alcoholism knew it was going to be inconvenient, kind of like having a bad arm or a bad leg or something, and knew that it'd make me die. Oh, you know, 20, 25 years younger, but my God, who wanted to live to be 30 or 35 years old? And, you know, so old, you weren't any good to yourself or anybody else. It, it was far more attractive to live fast, love hard, die young, and leave a beautiful memory, you know. Uh, so, so I don't believe that intellectual mission does much. In fact, and I tell this for the humor of it, when I, 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 I my, my life's work has, has been practicing law, and I've been a criminal defense lawyer primarily all my life, and started practicing law in 68, and I had, I had some early success. You know, we alcoholics are great sprinters. We're not much on the marathon, but we're great sprinters. And, and I had some, some real nice early success, and, and I felt sorry for my brother and sister alcoholics who weren't intelligent and strong-willed enough to deal with their alcoholism. So we had one drying out joint in Louisville at that time by the name of Pleasant Grove. So I started donating some money to Pleasant Grove to take care of my brothers and sisters that didn't have the intelligence and the willpower, you know, to, to deal with their alcoholism. And I donated enough that they re, uh, redid the recreation hall out there and named it Major Hall after me. It was still named Major Hall several years later when I got kicked out of there twice for getting drunk on Listerine while they were trying to drive me out. Uh, so, so I'm not overly impressed with the power of the intellectual admission of alcoholism. Uh, 
Uh, of course, what I was missing, uh, I was missing the fact that it's incurable, progressive, and fatal in everybody that ever had it. What I was missing was the fact that everybody that's ever had this deal, in one form or the other, they've recovered from it or they've died from it. And I wasn't going to be the first exception in the history of the world. See, I thought I could outrun it, outsmart it, bribe it. You know, there had to be some way to do it. But I didn't understand that if I've got it locked up, covered up, sobered up, no other way. Uh, <clears throat> the doctor's opinion, by the way, if you haven't read that lately, go back and read it. It is so beautiful. Uh, if if he wasn't if he wasn't inspired from God by God when he wrote that, I don't know how it could have come out because it's it's a beautiful beautiful thing. But at any rate, uh, I said the first step is conclusions, and I, and and I believe that the first step is in fact and is supposed to be and must be a humanly hopeless dilemma. Absolutely humanly hopeless. Now, in all these asylums I've been in, I could have quoted the first step to you backwards, probably. Okay, admitted that we were powerless over alcohol. Well, by the time I started getting in those joints, that physical uh, craving, the phenomenon of craving that the book talks about, had progressed in me to the point where once I started drinking, I just physically lost the ability to stop. I mean, it was so progressed that something had to intervene and get me physically prized loose from alcohol. And when something did intervene and did that, it took three or four days for me to be physically able to do something like sit up in a chair. So I thought I had to deal on powerless over alcohol because it was real clear to me that once I put it in my body, it was Katie bar the door. There was no predicting my behavior. I would not be able to stop on my own physically. Something would have to intervene if I was to ever stop. So I figured, I got it now. Most people are right. I am powerless. So it's kind of like having a ratchet inside you that over the years has just worn down. And my tolerance to it is just gone. I get any of my body that craving sets up. So I got this. I'm not going to start this nightmare merry-go-round again. So I got it. When I get out of here, I just want to start that old drinking again. Of course, I'd be drunk usually before I got out of the asylum. I was a big one for figuring a way to get drunk in the asylum and, and always drunk as soon as I got out of the asylum. Uh, what I was missing, of course, was the mental obsession. And the book tells us that our problem centers mainly in our minds. And what that tells me is that as powerful as that phenomenon of craving is in me, the mental obsession is more powerful. The mental obsession is more powerful. That mental obsession would get me. You see, where I wind up is that I'm powerless over alcohol whether or not I've got it in my system. And here's part of the humanly hopeless dilemma. If I pick up a drink of alcohol, I will set in motion a physical process that will culminate in my mad dog death if it is not interrupted by an outside force. Because of my mental obsession, unless something is changed inside me that I can do nothing about changing, I will pick up the first drink. I'm as powerless ultimately over the first drink as I am the second one or the 22nd one. That's getting pretty serious. If I pick it up, I'm going to die, and I will pick it up, and there's nothing I can do about that.
Now, another thing that I had to get through my head, like most of it, like, you know, Bill and Dr. Bob both used things other than alcohol. Um, and by the time I was making those rounds to the asylums, I had begun to use a lot of things other than alcohol. Again, no soapbox, no controversy. I don't care how anybody else looks at it. I don't think I've got two illnesses. If I've got two illnesses, I've got 150. Because anything, any activity, any person that I ever thought I could do something about that pain and that emptiness that that obsession with myself had created, if I did not use and abuse that in order to try to make me feel better, let me assure you it was an oversight. It was not, it was not intentional on my part. Uh, because the way I feel without divine intervention is the most important thing in the universe to me. So certainly I will do anything without divine intervention to make me feel better. It's just simply, it's that simple. But at any rate, things had gotten all confused with me on the booze and dope. And what would happen would be that I would be in an asylum and I'd be primarily coming off alcohol. And I'd think, you know, these folks are right. I drank this old booze too long. You know, I take that one drink and the craving sets up and, and it's just a nightmare. But, you know, man, I can pop some pills or snort some cocaine or fire up a little Dilaudid or something, and I don't turn into a raving maniac, you know. Uh, so I get out of here, I'll just chip on the old dope. You know, I won't fool with the old booze anymore. Of course, within 24 hours, I'd be on everything. Then they'd have me in there, and they'd be primarily bringing me off dope. And I'd think, you know, I really wasn't doing all that bad till I started messing with this old dope. Uh, you, uh, you, you know, the, uh, sure, the booze was, was inconvenient zone, but I was doing all right. You know, I, I was functioning, so when I got out here, I'll just drink. And it was real funny. When you were in the alcoholic mode, it was just shameful to be a drug addict. And when you were in the drug addict mode, it just seemed so pedestrian to be an alcoholic. You know, it was just an insult. Uh, but <laughs> but at any rate, uh, within 24 hours, I'd be on everything. So I had to understand not only am I powerless over it, whether or not I've got it in my body, uh, I have to include all mind-altering substances in that for me. Now, the next conclusion is that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, I thought I had that one down pat, too. You know, I thought, hey, I'm done with that because I didn't have any denial about my life being a mess. Even I wasn't crazy enough that somebody that had done all the things I'd done, living on the street and all the messes I was in, uh, that their life wasn't a god-awful mess. So I had no denial about it, no problem. I also was absolutely convinced that it was hard to imagine how a human being could have managed worse than I had managed. So I thought, I got that. Let's go on. Hadn't even scratched the surface. Because, you see, if the, my problem is my life is a mess because I have managed terribly, what do I need with some sort of nebulous higher power out here in step two? All I need to do is grab the bull by the horns and manage better. You know, I just need to manage that circuit. That's why the step doesn't say it. It says life was unmanageable. Now, if I had a car out here in this parking lot, and that car was undrivable, it wouldn't make any difference how much I honed my driving skills or how much I concentrated on my driving. That car wouldn't go, wouldn't go an inch because it's undrivable. Now, if my problem were that I had problems in my life because I was driving terribly, you know, running over people and things and getting arrested and sued and that sort of thing, then that'd solve the problem. 
you know, me taking that action on my driving. But if my car's undrivable sitting out there, that's not going to help a thing. I'd sit at the wheel and concentrate until I'm blue in the face and I'm not going anywhere. That's what the book says. My life's unmanageable. Bottom line, yes. My life was a god-awful mess that because of what's wrong with me, I couldn't even have prevented. And because of what's wrong with me on my own, I can't do one thing about cleaning it up. Now, folks, I've hit that absolutely hopeless dilemma. I'm where I need to be because I don't have anywhere else to go. And when we come back after a little break, I'll talk to you a little bit about how absolutely repugnant the step, second step was to me. I mean, it, it, it was really, uh, uh, I'm scared to death of snakes, and a snake pit was probably more attractive to me than the second step of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I had absolutely nowhere to go because I'd finally been able to reach those conclusions that are the first step. That if I start drinking, I'm going to die, and I can't prevent starting drinking. And my life's a mess that I couldn't even have prevented. And I can't do a thing about cleaning up in and of myself. And when I've done that, I believe I've made those conclusions. And folks, let's take this break for about, uh, uh, oh, say 10 minutes and come back, uh, or 15 minutes and come back. And thank you so much for listening to me. But what really blows me away is when some of you come back after a break. You know, that, that really, <laughs> it really amazes me. So, so thanks. And I don't know whether this will help anybody else or not, but I know that every time I'm given the great gift of being able to do this, I have to go back through the steps myself. And, uh, it's always a great help to me. Before we move on to step two, there was something really important to me that I I didn't mention with regard to step one. If it hadn't have been for this realization, I'd have been dead a long, long time ago. I had to get it through my head that powerless over alcohol did not mean powerless over my elbow. Uh, Because, you see, during that two and a half years when I was in and out of the asylums and living on the streets, I thought AA wasn't working if I wanted to drink real bad. Because remember, the way I feel without divine intervention is the most important thing in the universe. So what I thought it was supposed to do was fix the way I felt so I could start doing right. Same old bad news. Had to start doing right before I started feeling right. Because I had to understand that what was causing me to drink, and and I share this with folks I sponsor today, and look, I'm not suggesting that 30 days sober you go out here and and get into a wild love affair with somebody that's still using. You know, obviously that's not good common sense and that's not good for your sobriety. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you work so hard the first six months you're sober that you don't get to many AA meetings. That obviously doesn't make any sense. I'm not suggesting that you go to nightclubs every night in your first year sober because you want to listen to the music. You know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. On the other hand, not but one thing causes getting drunk, and that's drinking. And I tell folks I sponsor, you know, do me a favor. Don't come back here and tell me the woman that you're fooling with caused you to drink. You know, don't tell me that this financial situation, the fact you didn't get to see your kid or you lost your kid, don't come back and tell me that caused you to drink or caused you to get drunk because what causes you to get drunk is an entire series of decisions of getting hold of it, getting it physically in the hand, 
lifting it up, tilting your head back, opening your mouth, and pouring it down your throat, and it can be stopped any time up until it's poured down the throat. Absolutely any time. And I had to get it through my head finally that just because a little exposure to AA had not kept me from wanting to drink real badly didn't mean that AA wasn't working. And I was going to have to do, I was 37 years old when I got sober. If I was going to live, I was going to have to do what I really believed were the first mature things I'd ever done in my life. And that was not do some things that I really wanted to do or that, that I really did not want to do. And uh, when do things I didn't want to do and not do things I wanted to do is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and I believe those were the first mature things in my life. A good example of that, and it kind of touches on both the first step and the uh, second step. At about two to three months sober, I wanted to drink so badly. Y'all know the feeling where if you if you don't get a drink or something that that you're just going to explode and splatter all over the ceiling and the walls. And I had to sit there and say, well, damn it, let's just see if I explode. You know, let's just see. And also something that really helped me, you know, I wasn't really drinking or using because it had already got so bad I couldn't stand it. I was drinking or using because I was afraid that in five minutes it was going to be so bad I couldn't stand it. So it was just a matter of sitting there and being mature. But at any rate, two to three months sober, I wanted to drink so badly. And I'd already started acting as if on the praying. And some of that miracle of the second step had begun to happen. I was beginning to come to believe. So I walked into a liquor store praying, God, please don't let me drink. God, please don't let me drink. Give me two pints of pop-off. God, please don't let me drink. I got my two pints of pop-off and I walked out of the liquor store and God spoke to me. Now... Bill Wilson said one time that if you're ever out in the woods by yourself and God speaks to you, call your sponsor right away. Um, and, and God has never flagged me down with a bullhorn. The way God talks to me is through you guys, through our literature, and also through my own thoughts and feelings, although I have to be real careful with those. Uh, uh, but God speaks to me in those ways. And, and it got real clear to me as I walked out of there that if I drank that, only two things could happen. I'd die a mad dog death, or I would go drag in one more time back into some AA place, some recovery place, with that terrible and pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, and say one more time, tell me again, I want to try this again. And I just didn't want to do it. I just didn't want to do it. So I went over and hid the... Uh, two pints of vodka by a particular road sign and some tall grass in case this AA stuff didn't really work. I'd know where to come back and get it. And I, and I went back to the clubhouse, and um, and what happened, as I say, this touches both on the first step and the, and the second. Old fellow down there that helped me a lot wasn't my sponsor named Gene Crotz. Gene's been dead for years. Gene said, Don, you know, we all thought you were really hopeless around here, and, and you've done real well for two or three months since you started doing some things like acting as if and praying and that sort of thing. I said, why don't you add to that prayer? I said, it won't take you ten seconds morning and night. Why don't you add to that prayer not only for God to get you through the day without drinking and drugging, but to get you through the day without wanting to do it? And said, why don't you just add ten seconds to your night prayer and thank God for that? You know, I did that the next day, and that has worked every single day for nearly 22 years. Every single day. 
and I haven't missed today. But, but the point that I wanted to make sure that I made is that for me, I had to understand that it's powerless over alcohol, not powerless over my elbow. Nothing causes me to get drunk but drinking alcohol. You see, and this is so important to me because this was the biggest enemy of me getting sober. It is the biggest enemy that I face every day of my life. Every day today. What it is, it's that part of me that says, Don, you have fouled up so badly that it doesn't matter. It's useless. Just give it up and go on. To me, you know, not to personify it, but I'm going to personify it. For me, if there's a devil, that's the devil. That's the thing in me that just doesn't care if it kills me. That's the thing in me that, that's the most dangerous, biggest threat to my sobriety, biggest threat to my happiness in the world. And, and, and it's just so important to me that I keep in my mind and I make clear to the people I sponsor, you remember, what causes you to get drunk is drinking. God, there's no corner that we can paint ourselves into that if we're finally willing to lay down the paintbrush and say, Mom, Dad, I have screwed up again, I'm sorry, that we can't get out of. There's no such thing as hopeless. We didn't, ex- we, 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 we didn't exhaust God's forgiveness when we got sober. And you see, I thought for a while I did. I really thought, said, you know, it's a miracle that with all the crap I did that God let me slide, but I know I'm under the strictest terms of probation. And that God's just sitting up there thinking, I ought not let him slide, and if he steps one foot over the line, I'm going to squish him like a bug, which I've been wanting to do anyway, uh, and ought to do. Uh, and that's not, my God's forgiveness is inexhaustible. And I need my God's forgiveness so much every day of my life, not only in the big things, I need it in the little things. I need it in the tiny little things. I need to be aware of my God, conscious of my God, my conscious contact with my God. And the 11th step, when we get to that, it's going to tell us how we do that, how we keep that in our mind, how we keep our conscious contact. And I need to know that I can always be forgiven. So it's real important to me. I wouldn't have lived if I hadn't understood that, <clears throat> hadn't have understood that it's powerless over alcohol, not powerless over my elbow. Step two. The decisions in step two are a little simpler than the decisions in step one. One is that somewhere out there, there's some power of some kind greater than myself, which I suppose could be a group or a doorknob or whatever, uh, that has the power to clean up the mess that in step one I had concluded that I couldn't have prevented making and I can't do anything about cleaning up. I don't know that this means a thing in the world. It's just always been a curiosity to me. The the second step makes no indication that we're supposed to have any inkling that that power might have the slightest interest in doing that because it doesn't say would, it says could. The second conclusion in the second step that I see is kind of a left-handed conclusion, and that's the conclusion that I have been insane. Now, some of us don't have any trouble with that when we get here. I certainly didn't. Uh, I'd always been a little, uh, you know, a little proud of being crazy. That was a, a part of my persona, and, and I knew I really was crazy uh, and didn't have a problem with that. But, you know, I didn't understand insanity at all. I really didn't. 
It was like everything else in my life. I had it backwards. When I was in an asylum one time before I got sober in 1980, I remember which asylum it was. It was in Mobile, Alabama, but oddly I don't remember whether the person I was talking with was a staff member or another inmate. But I know that this person said, Don, they don't put you in the asylum for being crazy. And I responded to that and I said, well, they put me in here for being crazy. They said, no, they put you in here for acting crazy. And said, I'll tell you something else. They don't let you out of the asylum for being sane. Said, they let you out of the asylum for acting sane. And I got thinking about that, and by that time, I'd gotten out of several asylums when I knew I was mad as a hatter by acting about half sane. So I figured there might be something to it. And you know, when we look at what the big book says about sanity and insanity, it is never talking about a state of mind or an emotional condition. It's talking about what we do. And the bottom line is real simple. Regardless of how disconnected I feel, regardless of how jumbled up everything in here is and how everything's spinning, and I feel just as crazy as a loon, that's uncomfortable, but it's ultimately harmless. It won't do any real damage. It's only acting crazy that'll kill me. And I believe with all my heart that I can feel that way, and do that next right thing and walk on through acting crazy and I believe that I may be saner than I ever get any other time when I'm acting sane when I don't feel sane. Now the flip side of that is I can wake up feeling, you know, just so exalted in my spiritual condition. You know, that uh, I just God and I, like I said earlier, going to merge with the towel. You know, don't need to pray because my whole life is a prayer for God's sake, you know. Uh, and uh, if I go out and do something crazy, regardless of how centered I feel, I'm nuts. And it's really good for me to understand that I need to judge my sanity and insanity not by the way I'm feeling and what I'm thinking, but what I'm doing. Just a little thing that's real helpful to me, and a lot of guys I sponsor at home say it's helpful to them. Uh, see, I believe that words are important. I believe what we call things is really important. And I, when we get to the uh, uh, end of the second step, I'll talk about, for instance, intention and decision. And this is something that I at least in part picked up from, uh, from Scott L. down in, in Nashville. He gave me some words to define what I'd been doing anyway. But I believe words are important. And what we have tried to do is avoid something that's just automatic. You know, we ask one another, how are you doing? And the answer you almost invariably get is we tell the person who asks how we're doing, how we're feeling. You know, and we have got tried to get around that, that if we are asked how are you doing, that we answer how we are doing. And then we may add, I've been feeling crazy as hell and I hadn't wanted to do this and you wouldn't believe what I've been wanting to do with the secretary, but I hadn't done it. Uh, and, <laughs> and so, so that's just important to me to, to keep those ideas about sanity and insanity straight. I found out for me in step, uh, 
two. Well, let, let, let me tell you a little bit about step two, and I don't want to belabor it because I'll talk about this when I talk later on, but I was really allergic to the God thing the first time I heard the steps read when they got step three I got up and announced that I didn't believe that there were really people in the world who believed such claptrap when they read step three and the time I was on crutches with a catheter bag and braces from a, a dope alcohol wreck and I hobbled on over the phone called somebody to get me away from the religious fanatics you know before they polluted my pristine intellect um, and every time anybody would mention God and, and using higher power didn't fool me a bit. I knew you were using a euphemism, trying to soft pedal it. I knew what you were talking about. You know, it offended me no less for you to use that little euphemism than it did to talk about God, the G word. And the little hairs would stand up on the back of my neck. I mean, it'd just make me so angry. And I'd be so intellectually insulted. Uh, and, and I, I really tried. I tried to change the things inside me to make me think, feel, and believe the way it looked like to me. You guys thought, felt, and believed. And I couldn't change anything. And I thought I had to die on account of it. And remember, I've got this basic problem that it doesn't occur to me that I can go ahead and do something if I don't feel like doing it. You know, it just doesn't occur to me. that That's not in my net. Without divine intervention, that's not in my repertoire. You know, we're going to get to work on making little Donnie feel like doing it. That's the way we get him to do things. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't occur to go ahead and do it. And, of course, what happened just by taking the action of praying and acting as if the, the miracle began to happen. So I got it through my head um, that, for me, the beginning of the second step was simply acting like I had a willingness to believe. I had to act like I had a willingness to believe. When I explained to the guys that I couldn't get on my knees morning and night because I couldn't think, feel, and believe the way they did, they had some really less than complimentary things to say to me. Uh, they, they said that they had never suggested that I think, feel, or believe anything. And I'm sure my mouth fell open because, you know, I thought that's where the whole game is, is what I think, feel, and believe. And they said, no, Don, we would never have done that. Uh, they said, in the first place, you are far too ill to have any valid thoughts, feelings, or beliefs whatsoever. <laughs> they said, in the second place, your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs are your illness. They are one and the same. There is no overlap. They are one and the same. They said, in the third place, the issue of whether you live or die is going to be determined solely by what you do. What you think, feel, believe won't have one thing to do with it. So they said, if you want to live, you get down there every morning, you get down there every night, and you say those words. And don't worry about what's going through your head because it won't count. And that was sometime in April of 81. My last day to drink was April 8th, 81. My sobriety date's April 9th. It was sometime later in April that I started getting on my knees morning and night. And to the best of my knowledge, I haven't missed a morning or night doing that. Uh, and I'm not telling you that to tell you how good I am. I'm telling you that for what I feel like is a much more important reason. Um, you see, there are many thousands of mornings and nights that have come and gone since April of 81 and now. Many thousands. At least half of all those thousands of times, I hadn't really wanted to get out there. Hadn't felt like doing it. Big percentage of the time, I clearly have not had time. 
a lot of the time I've been so scared and or obsessed by something that it seemed like I couldn't remember the last word I just tried to pray. And it was absolutely clear to me that it couldn't possibly be doing any good. But I've gotten down there every morning and I've gotten down there every night and something has worked every single day. Now, I don't tell the people I sponsor that they have to get on their knees because that's not the way I sponsor. I I do real well to know what's good for me. I'm in bad shape if I start taking a position I know what's good for somebody or right for somebody else. All I can share is what's worked with me. What I do tell them is, you know, it's probably not going to do any good to ask me for guidance on how to stay sober without getting on your knees morning and night because I don't have any experience at all with it. None at all. The only way I have ever been able to stay sober is get on my knees every morning and get on my knees every night. In the early days of that, when I was getting down there, and Lord, it just seemed so, it seemed so artificial. It seemed so, so wrong, you know, the acting as if. And I can remember thinking things like, you know, Major, if, if they catch you down here talking to this wall and you're not even drunk, uh, they'll put you in this aisle and they won't ever let you out. You know, this is insane. Uh, but I kept on doing that. And the miracle of the second step began to happen to me. You know, I began to come to believe. Now, have I come to believe perfectly? Of course not. It would be knowledge. If it were perfect, it wouldn't be belief. Uh, one of my favorite prayers comes from that old big, big book that's not conference-approved material. Uh, that, and, and that prayer is, uh, Lord, I believe. Please forgive my disbelief. And keep on trying to do that next right thing. And some things that I've learned that are true for me over the years, I had a total misunderstanding of what faith is. I thought faith was that nice, warm, comfortable feeling that God's got me in the palm of his or her hands and everything is just okay. Not faith. That's the reward for faith. Faith is a really uncomfortable deal, and it is a verb rather than a noun. It's an action thing. Faith is when that little spark of the divine in me, the part of me that knows God's will for the next right thing, and when the third step we'll talk about it, it does not know God's will in any broader sense than that whatsoever. But it will tell me where to take that next stitch. It's where when in my heart I know where the next stitch needs to be taken or not taken, and my brain is assuring me that if I don't do the opposite of what I know is right, It'll be a disaster. You see, I thought when I first started trying to do the right thing, I thought the enemy of the right thing would generally be things like greed and lust. And they are the enemy of the right thing about 1% of the time. For me, about 99% of the time, the enemy of the right thing is fear. It's the fear that if I do it right instead of the way I know in my heart it needs to be done, that I won't look good, that I'll lose something I don't want to lose, that I won't get something that I really want. That's what it is, is simply that fear. And when I take that next stitch in the right direction, 
then I believe that that's the greatest faith that I can exercise. And then later on, I get the feeling, that's real uncomfortable. You know, when you're scared to death that what you're doing is going to cause something that you don't want to happen to you, that's not comfortable at all. So that's why I say faith is uncomfortable for me. Uh, but the reward for faith comes. That holding, you know, feeling like I'm just so comfortable that God's just saying, Shh, calm down, Don. Calm down. It's okay. You know, it's okay. Everything's all right. That comes as a reward for having done that really hard action of doing that next right thing. Um, another thing I want to talk about is attitude, because that was connected with my second step. All of us have heard it from the first few AA meetings we went to. You got to change your attitude. Make your attitude one of gratitude. If you don't have a good attitude, you're going to get drunk. Man, I heard that, and it caused me to go into very deep despair. Because the only definition of attitude that I knew of was it was my mindset toward something and the way I felt toward something or somebody. And I can't change that. I don't have any switches inside me to flip to change that. So I thought I was in mortal danger of getting drunk. And finally, Cherry sent me to a, a, a large unabridged dictionary, and that used to really insult me because I knew I was so much better educated than he and knew so much more about words. And why would somebody of my stature need a dictionary, for God's sake? Uh, but he sent me the dictionary, and I looked up attitude. And in that dictionary, the first definition had nothing on earth to do with the way I thought or felt about something. It was a definition that had to do with geometry and aviation. It was angle of approach. And since that time, my attitude has been angle of approach. My attitude toward you or anything, anybody in this world, is not what I may feel or think about you. My attitude is the way I act toward you my angle of approach toward you. And you see the absolute instant miracle in that? The instant miracle is that my attitude went in a heartbeat from something totally beyond my control to something totally within my control. Just an absolute miracle in my life. Uh, <clears throat> okay, well, I'm going to move on to step three. Um, step three is where we begin to take some action. Now, actually... Just to confuse the issue a little bit, Chuck Chamberlain doesn't call step three an action step, so it's one of the few places where I disagree with old Chuck, but uh, the way I see it is, is you got to take some action with step three, so so that's what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I, I started to say a minute ago something that I was attributing to, to Scott Lee. That's the intention and decision thing. That's real important to me. Because my intentions and decisions today are entirely different things. And I'm saying this because we're, we're, we're going to talk about decision in a minute here in step three. My intentions do not become decisions until I am acting on them. And that's another one of those word things that those of us that live together in recovery in Louisville try to help one another with. You know, if we say we've made a decision... We'll get cross-examined by the other to find out if we've really made a decision or we just have an intention. 
And it's very important to me to understand my intentions don't graduate to decisions until I am actually taking <coughs> taking action on them. Of course, step three is uh, is that we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Well, after I'd acted as if a couple of months and I was beginning to uh, become awake to spiritual things, and I really was, but then on the other hand, I felt like I was getting quite spiritually erudite too. You know, I kind of, kind of amazed my sponsor and others with my quick grasp of this spiritual thing. And, and I'd begun thinking about this overwhelming process of turning my will and life over to God. And to tell you the truth, I think I had some sort of picture like an old Cecil B. DeMille movie that God and I were going to be in this great ornate hall with all the marbles and everything, and, and God would unroll the entire tapestry of my life. And we'd walk up and down it together, and and I really thought I'd probably point out a few things, and God would say, gee, that's good, Don. I never thought of that. Yeah, we'll do it that way. Uh, and point is, we would have God's will, past, present, and future, all mapped out, so I could go on cruise control. Man, I always want to make policy. I just hate having to make these instant-to-instant -instant decisions about what's right and wrong. I want to always do this in this situation. I want to always not do this in this situation. I want to set policy. I can't ever set policy because I don't get a glimpse of God's will other than the right now. If I believe, if I'm trying to figure out God's will five seconds from now, I'm in worse shape than a chimpanzee trying to master quantum physics. I simply have not got the capacity. And, and let me point that out the way it was pointed out to me. Now, we all believe that five seconds from now, it will probably be God's will for me to be up here droning on and you folks shifting in your seat wondering if I'm ever going to shut up. But you see, the fact is, that in the next five seconds, any one of us could have a seizure. We could have a heart attack. A fire alarm could go off. An airplane could fly into the building. Security could come in here about something. A drunk could stumble in. On and on. We could spend the rest of the morning coming up with scenarios that would absolutely change what we believe God's will is going to be five seconds from now. And yet I waste all this time trying to figure out God's will for next month for next year, for 10 years from now. I waste all this time. And what it is, all my life I have wanted to figure out the pattern so I'd know where to start stitching. And I've always had it backwards. I am absolutely incapable of comprehending the patterns of my life. When I look back and I'm honest about it, I've never seen a single one correctly. One of the most powerful things that ever happened to me in my sobriety happened about 20 years ago. It was a guy who's dead now who's sober in Louisville. He was a really successful real estate developer and had been a cabinet member in the state government and, and was a friend of mine. And uh, he left in the state of over $40 million, completely self-made. He and I were talking on a trip back from an AA meeting. He had a big motor home, had somebody driving, and some of us gone to a meeting. We were talking in the back of it one night, and he said, Don... You know, not one single thing in my life has ever worked out the way I had it planned. Not a single thing. And that man amassed $40 million. 
You see, when I looked, the patterns never did. I never had the patterns exactly right. But I want to spend all my time figuring out the fact is the patterns belong to God. In a minute, we're going to get to what Bill says about that. I was taught, and I believe that that's what Bill means when he says we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Playing God is trying to figure out the patterns. My job is stitching. That's all I'm ever going to get. That little spark of the divine is going to tell me where to take that next stitch. There are a lot of benefits to that, too. A lot of benefits. I am really, really sad about children starving to death in some impoverished third world country. I really am. You know, and I'd like to help, and I'm not callous to that at all. I am really, really saddened by children that are born afflicted in some sort of way. All the terrible things that go on in this world. But I spend not one heartbeat trying to reconcile that with God's will. None. Because I know I can't. I absolutely know that the only glimpse of God's will I'm able to glimpse is that next right action for me. In fact, Cherry told me, he said, Don, if you ever believe you've got a handle on God's will for anywhere other than right now, you call me because you're crazy. And he said, further, if you ever get an inkling that you've got an idea of God's will for another person anywhere at any time, you call me right away because you're even crazier. Said the only glimpse of God's will you're ever going to get is in the right now. Now, uh, Cherry started trying to make it clear to me that there wasn't going to be any great big, uh, you know, great big marble hall and God and I going through and making policy for the rest of my life and turning my will and life over to God. In fact, Cherry said, Don, third step doesn't turn anything over to God. It's not supposed to. It's merely a decision to do so. And I said, oh, come on, Cherry, you're playing a semantic game with me, for goodness sake. So well, we know what the third step really is. He said, Don, this is always so difficult for me, but, but I'm going to try to get up on your intellectual level. Uh, he, he said, let's suppose there are three frogs sitting on a log. One of them takes an ocean jump in the pond. How many are left? And I said, Two. He said, no, you dumbass, there are three. He just took a notion he hadn't done anything. He said, third step's not supposed to turn a single thing over to God. It is merely a decision that you're going to start walking the path to let God make your will in life what God would have it be. He said, also, the third step is not some process that happens to you. He said, if you're in a discussion meeting, here's somebody wondering whether they've done the third step, Alcoholics Anonymous or not, don't worry about it because they hadn't. He explained to me that this book was written for two purposes. This book was written to make money, and this book was written as an experiment to see if the message of recovery could be carried by mail. And it turned out that it was very successful. The message of recovery could be carried by mail. The intent was that this book would wind up in the hands of many, many people who had absolutely no human contact with another person on the recovery path, that this book was all they had. And the book was written with that in mind. That's why it says in the third step that we can do our third step alone if there is not an understanding person available. It tells us that it's very desirable to do it with another person. But because of the loners, it told them, hey, 
while it'd be better if you had somebody else, if you can't find anybody, you go right ahead and do it. Today, we've got a 100 understanding people at our fingertips. Any one of us that's been around AA for a month can round up a 100 understanding people within an hour's time. So we have always got an understanding person available. So Cherry said, if you haven't gone in a room with another human being and gotten down on your knees and said words that are similar to the third step prayer on page 63 and intended for that to be the watershed moment in your life when you start trying to do it God's way instead of yours, your way and you commit to do the rest of the steps, then you end up the third step alcoholics knowledge. For a long time, I kept a little post-it note stuck on my mirror of when, where, and with whom I did the third step of Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous. And I suggested my sponsors that they might want to do that. You know, awakenings and important moments in my life, and this is real important to me, seem to be about as important as I make them. And it's always been really significant to me that, you know, when Bill had the white light experience in the hospital... Bill clearly didn't know what happened. He didn't know what it was. Didn't know if it was something or nothing. Doctor came in the next morning. He told the doctor that, essentially that. The doctor said, I don't know either, Bill, but if I went in the shape you're in, I'd hold on to it. And Bill Wilson made a decision that that had been a significant experience. And that decision that Bill Wilson made is probably the reason that we are all here right now. What I'm saying is real important to me that I am responsible in part, maybe not for lighting the fire on my burning bushes, but I'm sure responsible for using the bellows to keep it going and growing. Things are about as significant to me as I decide they are and as I treat them as if they are. But Cherry took me into the third step. And by the way, uh, if you read the three and a half pages in the book that are devoted to the third step and count them, you'll find that there are 21 or 22 references to some form of the word self. So there's no question what the enemy is here. It tells us... It tells us, of course, selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. Um, it says we have examples of self-will run right. And then Bill does a kind of a literary trick, or two of them, that he, does, he uses a lot in this book. He talks about how hopeless it is. It says we've tried and tried to get over what this self-centeredness was doing to us. We couldn't. It said we had moral convictions and philosophical convictions galore, but they didn't help. And we try and try, and we couldn't get any help for it. And then it said we couldn't reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. And then here's what Bill does. He gives us a red flag. He gives us these red flags all through his books where he's saying, now listen up because we're going to tell you just exactly what we did. And here he does that by saying this is the how and why of it. And then he uses another literary trick that he uses a lot because he tells us the same thing that he thinks is really important three or four times in a row in a little bit different language. He says, first of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Already talked about the pattern. Very interestingly, it doesn't say we had to quit playing God because we might not stay sober. It doesn't say we had to quit playing God because it would interfere with our spiritual growth if we didn't. It says we had to quit playing God because it didn't work. 
It doesn't work in business. It doesn't work in the relationship with my child. It doesn't work with the significant other. It doesn't work with my friends in AA. It just flat does not work. It is an ineffective way to run my life to try to get the pattern straight before I start stitching. It does not work. Then Bill comes right back and said, um, next we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. Same principle. If I'm going to be in a play, a director will give me a script. Now the script for our purposes, is that little spark of the divine, that conscience, that wee small voice, whatever, that thing that knows the next stitch, but no further than that. Director gives me that script. I look at the script and say, man, this is bad. If I say what the script says I'm supposed to say and my character acts this way, not only will my character come off terribly, the whole play is going to be a disaster. And I start ad-libbing. What's going to happen is this. I will have chaos until I follow the script for the simple reason that the director's got the power. Doesn't make a difference what I think about the script, what I feel about it. I will live in chaos until I follow that script because the director's got the power. Bill comes right back at us. He is the principal. We are his agents. Employer, employee. I'm working for a guy. He drives me out, drops me off, said, Donna, won't you dig three holes over there? He tells me the size and the space and precisely where they're supposed to be dug. He gets in the truck and leaves. I look over there and say, they don't belong there. It's too rocky anyway. Uh, and they don't need to be that size. They need to be over here. They need to be another size. They need to be another distance apart. When that guy comes back at lunchtime, I'm going to have chaos. And I will continue to have chaos until I dig the holes exactly where and the way the guy told me to dig them for the simple reason that the boss has got the power. And then Bill tells us one more time. He is the father and we are his children. Okay? Um, kid will not eat the spinach. Is not going to eat the spinach. If the parent is firm... And I have found my heavenly parent to be capable of real firmness at times. If the parent is firm, the kid will eat the spinach. Or the kid will have chaos. Of course, in this case, the parent may have chaos too. But the kid will have chaos until the kid eats the spinach. For the simple reason that the parents got the parent and the kid had. Now, I'm spending all this time on this and I'm doing this because of what Bill Wilson says. Immediately after this, Bill Wilson says, most good ideas are simple. And this concept, what we just talked about, what we just talked about, was the keystone, holds the whole thing together, the absolute most important part of the new and triumphant arc through which we pass to freedom. So that simple idea that I'm going to stitch and not worry about the patterns, that I'm going to follow the script, that I'm going to do what the boss tells me. I'm going to do what my parent tells me. That simple idea is what holds it all together. I can't have my pathway to freedom if I don't get that simple idea through my head and try to live that way. Now, immediately after that come the third step promises. And I mentioned the promises in the book other than the ones in steps eight and nine. Not everybody has a book, so I'm going to take a minute and read them out loud. 
When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Provided what we needed. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, feeling that new power flow in, what a beautiful promise. As we enjoyed peace of mind, how about that one? Enjoying peace of mind. As we discovered we could face life successfully. As we became conscious of his presence. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Now, how do you get promises any stronger than that? They just simply, to me, are as powerful as promises can possibly be. Then we have the third step prayer on the middle of page 63. And in keeping with the book, the whole tone of the book of not being dictatorial or or didactic about anything, Bill says that the wording, of course, is quite optional. And I'm sure it is. But why on earth would I monkey with it? Why on earth would I try to improve on the language in this prayer that has been successful in so many hundreds of thousands of cases? What would possess me to make me think that I could somehow change that to make that better or more effective for me? And that's just my take on it. So I use the third step prayer in its exact form as it's in the book. Uh, after Cherry and I had done that, I began, I started to leave the room and Cherry had a few more things to say to me. He said, Don, um, the only definition of courage is doing the next right thing when you don't want to do it. And, of course, I knew I was, as I said, better educated than Cherry, and I knew there were a whole bunch of definitions of courage. Here, almost 22 years later, after doing that third step with Cherry, I can tell you the only definition of courage that I know that's real is doing the next right thing when I don't want to do it. Because if it's not right, courage is not involved. And if I want to do it, it doesn't require courage. You know, it's only when I don't want to do it. And that's why. You see... I don't judge my spiritual condition on what I'm feeling or thinking or what I'm wanting to do or not wanting to do. Because, hey, it's this simple. There is no spiritual value in me not doing something that I don't want to do anyway. You know, what is the spiritual advantage in me not making a, a, a pass, an improper pass, at a woman that I don't want to have anything to do with anyway? It's only when I'm bursting with that. You know, it's only when I'm bursting with wanting to do whatever the wrong thing is and I do the right thing instead. That's when it's of real spiritual value. When I want to do the wrong thing, but I do the right. And as I said earlier, the, the, uh, the key there though is that the times we get that great, you know, we get a great relief because we get to the only freedom a human being can ever know. More and more it becomes that we're doing the right thing because we want to do it. And that is, is the only freedom I was taught that a human being can ever know. Is when we are doing the right thing because we want to do it, then that truly has become freedom. 
Next thing he said to me is, Don, uh, and remember, I make his language harsher than it was to make a point here. Uh, but, but he said, uh, Don, don't call me up aggravating me about your third step evaporating if you have not at once begun a fourth step. He said, not all the promises in this book are positive. Some of them are negative. And he said, immediately following the third step prayer. The book tells us that unless we start on a fourth step at once, even though our decision, the third step, is vital and crucial, it can have little lasting effect. He said, what that means, Don, is it won't amount to a hill of beans, that it will evaporate unless you start on a fourth step at once. He said, now, if this book had meant unless you start on a fourth step when you feel like you can do it without getting drunk, it would have said, unless you start on a fourth step when you feel like you can do it without getting drunk. If it had said, unless you start on a fourth step when your sponsor or group decides you are ready to do a fourth step, it would have said that. He said, if you were supposed to start when you saw a burning bush, it would have said you are supposed to start the fourth step when you see a burning bush and you know it's time to do a fourth step. He said, what the book says is the third step won't amount to hill of beans unless you start on a fourth step at once. Well, having become as, as open and willing as I had by that time to grasp things so quickly, sure enough, eight months later, I started a fourth step. <laughs> and, But now I worked on that fourth step in that eight months. I want to know, want you to know. I was thinking about my fourth step. I was getting it all straight in my head before it got down on paper. And, and I would even, even call Cherry to share some of the major revelations with him and maybe straighten out on some things I would curl out of my head before I started writing. Uh, and Cherry sounded like a broken record. He said, Don, it is impossible to begin a fourth step without a pencil and a piece of paper and a big book open to page 64. And then I would tell him some more really, really enlightened things, you know. And he would say, Don, you can't start a fourth step without a pencil and a piece of paper and a big book open to say page 64. He said, up to that point, you're a squirrel cage. And it was at that point he made some, com made some comments about the... Uh, <coughs> um, uh, about the fact that running it around in my head, trying to figure me out, was just what I'd done all my life. Lord, I sat and drank. I sat with hangovers. I sat when I was going to get drunk. Just so obsessed with figuring me out. You know, what made me tick? What was wrong? You know, what was going on with me? So I'd been, that'd always been, as I said earlier, the most engrossing subject I could think of, me. You know, trying to take my inventory was not new. He said, just because you hadn't had a drink for a few months and have been through steps one, two, and three, you have not been magically enabled to take your inventory. He said, you still can't take it. But he said, that's okay. He said, what you can do without any preconceived notions of what you're going to write down on paper. You can open that book up, and you can get your pencil and piece of paper, and you can say a prayer, 
and you can go through there following the instructions that this books give that this book gives you in pages 64 through 7 and if you follow those instructions thoroughly said so a miracle's going to happen your inventory will emerge he used that same thing that I mentioned earlier like a child doing a picture by follow the dots hey this is not about self realization guys this is not about self-knowledge. The fourth step is not a psychological exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. And the true value is the humility and the willingness to follow these directions as clearly as I can because this deal is not merit. This deal is grace. This deal is absolute grace. And it comes from me following directions. It's like on the praying one time. I told, I was complaining to Cherry that so often it didn't feel right when I prayed, you know, and I was worried about the wording and that sort of thing. And, and he said, Don, you don't get it, do you? He said, Let, let's analyze what you're saying here. He said, do you believe that God does not know what you need unless you specifically and precisely advise God of your needs? He said, in your case, I really think it's more malignant than that. He said, in your case, I believe you think you can state it so eloquently that you will influence God. He said, Don, the only thing that's of any value whatsoever is your willingness to get down on your knees and humble yourself before your Creator. He said, sure, do the best you can with the words. But what's of value is you simply getting down there. And I believe that that's the way the fourth step works. Sure, it needs to be fairly thorough. But I also need to just be simply following the directions that are in this book. And I'm, I'm not going to... Uh, Oh, before I leave the third step, I did want to mention uh, one other thing here. Uh, you ever notice that the word sponsor is not used in the first 164 pages of the big book? And, you know, it's kind of an odd word for what a sponsor really is. You know, we're primarily guides through the steps and some sort of half-baked spiritual advisor. Well, you know... No, normally a sponsor is somebody who pays for the airtime on TV or radio or buys the bowling or softball uniforms or, or maybe vouches for you at a private club that you won't pee in the punch bowl if they let you in. Uh, but, 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 you know, some kind of half-baked spiritual advisor and guide through the steps. Cherry explained to me where that word came from and why it's used. <clears throat> and it's very important to me with regard to step three. In the very, very beginning, before the fellowship had a name, you know, the fellowship was named after the book. It wasn't the other way around. In fact, up until the time of the book, the, the name that was most popular and, and that they believed it would probably be was The Way Out. But Alcoholics Anonymous was named after the book Alcoholics Anonymous. But in, in the very early, early days before there were 12 steps in a form of 12 steps before there was a book, uh, what we now know as AA certainly was not open. It was held behind closed doors in people's houses, and only the people that were selected were there. And what would happen, they'd get a prospect, you know, a wet drunk somewhere that some of them had come in contact to, and a person from the group would go work with that wet drunk. And what they would really do would be take them through the conclusions that we have talked about this morning that we now call the Steps 1 and Steps 2 conclusion. 
and take them through this process that we now call step three of saying the prayer and making the decision to try to do, try to do it God's way. And then and only then would the person take them to their first meeting. Then and only then the rationale was that unless somebody was willing to do all those first things first, wasn't in a sense wasting time with them. And then they would take them to the meeting and they would say, here's old Joe. He and I have been through things together. I believe he's ready. I'll vouch for him. I will sponsor him. In other words, I'll vouch that he is okay to be here because he's been through those first things. So it's good to bear in mind that the, in the very beginning, the folks that put this thing together didn't think there's any sense in wasting time with you on a meeting if you hadn't already done your third step. So it's got to be important, I think. But going back to the uh, back to the fourth step, um, I didn't bring a bunch of these today. I, I never feel good about making them available, but um, I went through the fourth step with all my sponsees for years before they would begin actually working on the fourth step, and we'd take notes, and I'd give them a copy of the notes. And then I was sponsoring a guy that was in the penitentiary far enough from Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I live, that it just wasn't practical for us to sit down. So I wrote him a letter that contained what I usually tell folks about what the book says to me on the fourth step. And that letter got refined, and it gets passed around a lot as uh, as kind of a, a guide. Uh, I believe and I certainly hope that there's nothing in there that's mine. All world it is is just simply analyzing precisely what the book says. You know, the first several times, probably the first 50 times, I read pages 64 through 70 where it talks about the fourth step. It seemed like some sort of treatise or essay on inventories. It's not that at all. The instructions are so terribly, terribly simple. Um, And I try to follow those instructions just to the T because I think that's where the value is. For instance, you know, we've got on page 65 the example of uh, of a resentment list. Up at the top in italics, it has I'm resentful at colon. The cause, no colon. Affects my colon. I have always been and remain convinced this morning that there either ought to be a colon after the cause or there ought not be a colon after the other two. But when I do this, I put a colon after I'm resentful at. I don't put it after the cause, and I do put it after effects man. Because I believe that the value here is me following these directions. The value is not what I'm going to figure out about me. I've been there, done that. didn't work. The value here is me coming like a little child and following the directions. Now, I'm going to go through just real quickly some of the things that I encountered in the fourth step. When I finally did sit down with the pencil and piece of paper, I sat there for about a day and I didn't have any resentments. Just didn't have any resentments. Uh, and I'd always suspected that I really had deeper problems than alcoholism anyway and that what was really wrong with me was I was crazy and I still suspected that at that time. Uh, so it was clear to me since it said that uh, resentment's the number one offender and kills more alcoholics than anything else, it was clear to me that I must I must be something in addition to an alcoholic. And what it was, I was simply not following the directions. See, these directions go land for land. What I was doing, I was jumping ahead again. Remember the Jack story? 
I knew that where I was supposed to wind up here was looking only at where I was wrong, that that's where I was supposed to wind up. So I was already looking at that when I was making my resentment list. And my brain had processed that. I mean, what kind of monster would be resentful at a a 13-year-old girl that did not want to see me after I had completely destroyed that child's life, humiliated in every way, thrown her from a lavish lifestyle into poverty? Uh, Who on earth, what kind of monster would be resentful at that child for not wanting to see him? This kind of monster. But my brain had processed that, put these layers over it that since it was so unjustified, it didn't exist. How could anybody with any real sense resent every male that was six feet tall? You know, and, 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 and how on earth could you have just a savage resentment against anybody that ever drove past an Ivy League university? You know, it, it, that's just crazy. And, uh, to have those kind of things, so I couldn't possibly have them. Well, did some praying and some people talked to me about what the book says. The book is specific. When we're making that list, we are to have no thought of where we might be wrong. That comes later. The book says it's our grudge list. We were sore. We were burned up. The making of the list itself is supposed to be done in anger with no thought of anything we might have done wrong because if we don't do it that way, the same thing happens that happens to me. We get our brains all fuddled up, and since we know the resentments are unjustified or silly or stupid, we don't get them on paper. So it's our grudge list. We don't think of anything that uh, that, that we've done wrong. We just write down the, the grudge list. Uh, by the way, Bill makes it real clear where we write and where we don't says we put it in black and white. We said it before us. I do want to mention this because it's come up a few times in, in my life and my sobriety. I have found that when, I, when I'm sponsoring people who for whatever reason really just can't read or write, and I've sponsored a couple of people who were so visually impaired that they couldn't do it. I've sponsored more people who, who truly did not have the literacy level to do it. I found for those people, doing it with a tape recorder works just fine. Works great. But for those of us who can read and write, I believe we need to do it just exactly the way this book says. I believe we need to use the pencil and the piece of paper. Another thing about the resentment list that helped me was when they pointed out to me something that says about the order that we do the resentment list in. You see, it seemed natural to me to start with my first resentment. I could remember something about mama and some cookies and hitting me with a flash water or something, you know. Uh, the book says we went back through our lives. Well, if I go back through my life, I got to start from right now and work backwards. And I can't tell you how much better that worked. Because what it did, it let me clean out a space around me. It let me take care of the most recent, most active resentments. You know, the guy that almost ran over me on my way to sit down and work on the fourth step. The guy that made the stupid remark in the meeting, you know, 30 minutes before that. Uh, it let me clean out the space around me, and then it just seemed to flow, working backwards the way that it, way that it, the way the book contemplated that it worked, and that uh, that worked beautifully for me. The next thing that we do. On page uh, um, 66 is that 
this does not require any writing, by the way. The book makes it clear that it doesn't. Um, it simply is reviewing the resentment list and seeing how the resentments control us and that we've got to be free of them if we're going to live. Um, it tells us that middle paragraph on page 66, look at it sometime, because it's so easy to read over that. Bill makes three references in that paragraph to resentments putting us in a physical, actual grave. And it's clear that he's not speaking, you know, symbolically. He's talking about that these resentments, unless something gets done about them for us, are going to put us in a coffin and six feet underground. They're flat going to kill us. Um, it says if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. And then here comes a phrase that uh, mystified me for two or three years sober. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. Well, I could understand the grouch, but the only definition I'd ever known of brainstorm was a sudden bright idea. You know, maybe a little questionable because of its suddenness, but a sudden bright idea about something, I didn't just see how in the world that could be fatal. And as I say, it takes me two or three years to get to a dictionary because if a fellow knows everything, you don't need things like that, you know. Uh, finally, I looked up brainstorm in the dictionary, and the first definition has nothing to do with a bright idea. The first definition was a sudden, violent rage. And once I understood that that's the definition of a brainstorm that they're using here in the 30s, a sudden, violent rage made perfect sense. Neither the slow burn, the, you know, just grouch and, and keeping it there and grumbling about it, that won't work for me, that'll kill me. And I don't need to be flying off the handle in the rages all the time, that'll kill me. So that made it, that made it, uh, made it clear to me. Uh, now, the next thing we do also doesn't require any writing, but I believe it's absolutely critical. We forgive everything, every person, principal, and institution on that, on that list before we look at where we were wrong. We go through the process of forgiveness. Now, real importantly, does that mean I've got to feel like I've forgiven everybody and everything on there? Absolutely not. Nobody could do that. Because, see, I've had to learn about forgiveness kind of like faith and, and things like that. Whether or not I have forgiven is determined by whether I act like I'm forgiven or not. Forgiveness is action. If I keep waiting to feel like I've completely forgiven you for something before I start acting like forgiving it, it probably ain't ever going to happen. But if I will start acting out forgiveness, it'll be fine. And by the way, before you start yelling hypocrisy, at the end of the day, I'm going to ask y'all to join hands with me, and we're going to ask our Creator to forgive us by precisely the same standard that we forgive other people, just precisely. I want to tell you, it'd be nice if God's attitude, God's mind were such that God really felt like I was a great guy and he or she really felt like forgiving me. But, you know, that's not going to make a bit of difference in my life. The only thing that's going to be important is whether God acts like God has forgiven me or not. So if I act out forgiveness to my fellow man, and I am given by my God precisely what I gave, I'll be just fine. The other magic to that is I found in almost all instances, when I act out forgiveness for a while, I begin to feel the forgiveness in my heart. 
uh, and it gives us a specific re, uh, forgiveness process. It's uh, bottom of page 66, top of page 67, gives us resentment prayers, or rather, uh, rather forgiveness prayers. We look at every person, principal, and institution on that list. We realize that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. We don't like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, but they too were sick. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. Thou will be done. The fourth step resentment or forgiveness prayers. Once I have done that, I don't have to wait for any great feeling of forgiveness to come over me. I've followed instructions. I'm ready to go on to the next phase of step four. And this is where I begin to write again, and this is where I turned it around 180 degrees. I look for only where I was wrong. I disregard entirely the other person's part in it. Even if they, even if I feel like they were one, 99% and I was, was one, I disregard my 99 entirely. I look at it only from where I was at fault. Got a wonderful checklist on page 67. Tells me just precisely what I'm looking for. It tells me I look at middle paragraph. Tells me I look at every single entry on that list and I subject it to this checklist. Was I selfish? Dishonest? Self-seeking? Frightened? Though the situation's not entirely my fault, I try to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where was I to blame? And then Bill says, when we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. Tells you twice in case you didn't get the idea that you were supposed to write it down when you got there. You know, Bill will whap, whap, he'll do that. Another important thing says when we saw our faults, we listed them. Nothing in that sentence limits that to the things on our resentment list. Any faults that come to our mind as far as I'm concerned during that process we're supposed to write down. And that becomes kind of important when we get to step eight because that's the only way I've ever found that when I get to step eight, I do have a list of everybody I've harmed that I made when I took inventory. If I don't write down all of my faults at that stage, I wind up not having that list. I don't know this big deal. and just I always make a new one at that stage anyway. Now, uh, tell you what, it's a quarter tail. We've still got two-thirds of the fourth step to go. Sometimes around discussion meetings, you'd think the resentment list was all there is to the fourth step. You've got the fourth step. You've got the resentment list. You've got the fear list, which will be the next thing we'll talk to, which is completely freestanding. The book makes it absolutely clear. It says whether they were connected to a resentment or not, we list our fears. We set them down before us. You know, we write them down. Second part of it. Third part is the sexual inventory. You really don't hear that talked about a whole lot in meetings, and probably rightfully so. But uh, very interestingly, if you took the example of the resentment list out of the part of the fourth step that talks about the resentment, Bill devotes more words to the sexual inventory than he does to resentment. It's a very, very important part of inventory, and it's a freestanding third part of it. And why don't we, uh, why don't we take our break until 1.30, give us plenty of time for lunch, and we'll come back and take up with the fear list on the fourth step. Thank you all so much.
I think where we left off was just starting to talk about fear, not that any of us ever have any trouble with that, of course, but uh, we were talking about the fear list on the fourth step and the fact that it's completely freestanding from the resentment list. The way I read the book, all I've got to do is list my fears. Bill makes it real clear that we that we write them down. Uh, again, just in case we miss it, he says we list them. You know, we put them down in front of us. Most of my fears were too silly or too embarrassing to possibly belong on the fear list. You know, uh, there I was 37 years old. I couldn't really be afraid of the dark and vampires and dead people and werewolves and uh, uh, stuff like that. And uh, it just didn't seem like something that really belonged there, you know, fear that maybe I wasn't sexually endowed as much as I ought to be or something like that. Uh, no, none of you fellows have ever had any such fears in your life. Um, it turns out, of course, that the fears that were too silly to be there, the fears that were too embarrassing to be there, were the ones that had to be there. Once it just had to absolutely be there. I need to, I need to list everything that comes to my mind as a fear in terms of my fears. Uh, and I'll tell you just my personal experience. You know, I talked about earlier I had time finding those resentments, but certainly I found plenty of them. But I believe for me fear has been and remains today a bigger problem than resentment. Uh, fear is my enemy. Fear is just absolutely the enemy. Uh, it, the book talks about a little bit about how important fear is, how it's shot, our fabric of our lives is shot through with it. Sometimes we think it ought to be classed with stealing. Um, seems to cause more trouble. Uh, I want to tell you that fear has caused me thousands of times more trouble than stealing has. Um, in fact, in my profession, I've made pretty good money, a little bit of money over my lifetime. Thank you. I made pretty good a little money out of other people stealing, so I don't know the stealing's caused me all that much trouble. Uh, but uh, but fear certainly has. It, it It's the enemy. Once I've listed uh, those things, it tells me uh, it tells me what my fear prayer needs to be. I need to look at my fears. I need to be aware of them. And it tells me that I need to... <coughs> that I need to pray to God to remove my fear and to direct my attention to what God would have me be. And we get a promise there. It says at once we will commence to outgrow fear. Now, at least for me, that didn't mean that any of my fears were lifted and gone immediately. It meant just what it said, that it put me on a path where I could be in the mode of outgrowing fear. I have begun to despair here at 59 years old that I will live long enough to finish the process of outgrowing fear because fear is still, as I say, my enemy. Something that that has happened over the years with my fear of prayer is that it has evolved. Part, part of my process of outgrowing fear has been this. The first two or three years I was sober, I would spend a lot of time sitting around, laying around or whatever, praying, God, please remove my fear 
so I can do whatever it is that I know needs to be done that I'm so afraid to do. And I'd pray, God, please remove my fear so I can go do this. And I'd keep on praying that. And not much seemed to be happening. And finally, somebody uh, uh, told me something. It's a silly little thing, but it, but it means a, a lot to me. It's helped me a lot. They said something along the lines that if you are hungry and lock yourself in a closet and pray for a hot dog, uh, it's probably not going to come squirting through the keyhole. <laughs> you know, praying for food is fine, but also need to be taking some action. You know, this old thing, how do you turn a toothache over to God? Well, calling your sponsor is not going to do any good unless your sponsor is a dentist. I hadn't found praying to be real effective with toothaches. I hadn't found meditation to be real effective with toothaches. The only thing way that I have ever been able to turn a toothache over to God is to go to a dentist. But that action is very important that I go to a dentist and that, that's the, uh, that, that's the, the path or the vehicle that God has provided for me in order to turn a toothache over to God. There's usually some action on my part that needs to be done to facilitate the process moving on. It turned out that with regard to fear, the proper prayer for me has become not God remove my fear so I can do this, because that wasn't getting me anywhere. The proper prayer for me has become, God, please give me the strength to begin acting on this in spite of my fear. And I have found out that when I pray on my knees for God to give me the strength to act in spite of my fear, and then I get up and start immediately walking toward whatever it is that I'm afraid of and start taking action toward it, then and only then does my fear of that get removed. As long as I lay on the couch praying for God to remove it so I can start addressing it, it doesn't ever happen. So my fear prayer today has evolved into please don't remove my fear. I'm not asking to have my fear removed right now. I'm just asking you to give me the strength to act in spite of my fear. And then my fear does get removed. Um, <clears throat> I already mentioned that fear... To me, 99% of the time is the enemy of the right thing. It's only very occasionally the classic things like greed and lust and that sort of thing. 99% of the time it's fear. It's fear that if I do what I know's right, that things won't work out to suit me or I'll look bad. My God, that most things usually boil down to that, you know. Most things usually boil down to the way I'll look. You know, if it's losing all my money, if you really scrape all the coats of varnish off that. I know how to survive without any money. In fact, in a lot of ways, my life was a lot simpler in an attic in Nashville, Tennessee, 21 years ago when I didn't have a job, didn't have a penny. I know how to survive on no money. What my real fear is is what everybody will think if that happens to me and how I'll look. And when I get real honest about it, I mean, it's just really, it's just really nasty when I get honest about it, even with a child. So much of that, when I get real honest about it, reflects back on my ego and how I'm going to look if my child does this and so or this and so. 
So, so much of it comes back to how I'm going to look, that I have to, I have to realize that fear is that thing, fear is that thing that, that is the enemy of my sobriety, is the enemy of my spiritual growth. Um, the third part of the, of the fourth step inventory is the sexual inventory. And like I said earlier, Bill actually devotes Except for the example of the, resi- of, the, of the resentment list, Bill devotes more words to talking about the sexual inventory than he does any of the other two parts of the inventory. It also is interesting the words that he uses. Um, Bill spends about a third of the words that he uses talking about the sexual inventory of telling us to quit making such a big deal out of sex. You know, it tells us that we need to avoid hysterical thinking. It tells us that opinions just go all off the board. And what Bill was aware of, you know, this happens. And look, I'm not up here talking about licentiousness in any way. I'm not in any way suggesting licentiousness. But what I am suggesting is there's something in us that, you know, when cheat on our income taxes, paid our expense accounts on, been sober a few years, I think, gee, I ought not do that. That makes me a little uncomfortable, and that's probably not good for Master Brad. And, gosh, that wouldn't be a good example for my sponsees and that sort of thing. But we go on, you know, and, and deal with that that way, and it's no big deal. But, my Lord, let us stump our toe sexually, and, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. I'm going to get drunk. You know, we put it in a completely different category than we do every other area of our life. And what I see Bill saying all through this is, hey, we treat it like we would any other problem. He expressly addresses what happens if we, uh, what happens if we stumble sexually. On page 70, it says, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire (coughs) to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we'll have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. And then Bill says something very interesting. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our own experience. With some of the history we know about Bill now, we wonder who the we is, that it may very well be Bill himself on his own experience with that. But it makes it very clear that that a stumble in that area does not mean that I'm going to get drunk. My continuing to do that without regard to other people being hurt will ensure that I will get drunk, will absolutely ensure it. But probably that's true in every other area of my life, too. Bill says, let's calm down on this area, that there are people who would have us uh, have no seasoning for our fare, and there are people who would have us on a straight pepper diet, that there are people that yell that what's the matter with the world is too much sex and it's the wrong kind, and there are people that yell that what's the matter with the world is not, not enough sex and it's the wrong kind. He says that only God can be the judge of our sexual behavior, while counsel with other people is very advanced. So what he's telling us to do is just calm down in that regard. And you know that 
that deal cuts both ways because I, I've spent a good deal of my sobriety sober. Uh, well, I've spent all of my sobriety sober. Uh, single. I've spent a good deal of my sobriety uh, single. Uh, and, and, you know, there are things that I would find myself doing in a boy-girl relationship that seemed perfectly natural and seemed okay. And then when I would really look at that, if I were doing that in a business relationship or with a friend that was platonic, it would just be horrible to do it that way. But some kind of way, I think what Bill's telling us here is we have set up a special spot in our mind for sexual relations. And we just treat them different than we do anything else. And what he's telling us is we don't really need to do that that every one of these principles applies just as much to that as it does any other area of our life. And if we'll calm down about it and just start, a, start applying the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous to it and start treating people right, start doing to and about people the way we would like to be done to and about, that we're going to be just fine. And then Bill tells us we get out our pencil and our piece of paper again. And what he tells us we do is that we review our conduct over the years past. And the last sentence of that paragraph is we got this all down on paper and looked at it. So he's making sure we know that we write at the sexual time too. The way, the way I've interpreted that is that I write down all of the, uh, all of the encounters in my life that I can recall that are sexual in nature. Now, that does not mean, certainly did not mean in my case that I had to have had sex with a person for it to belong there. One very good reason for that is that some of my tackiest efforts were unfruitful. Uh, so, uh, if, if I, if I was sexually motivated, it, it needs to, it needs to go down there. And, and, and very honestly, there are a lot of folks who, uh, who, out of necessity, have to use categories. There, there are folks who, who truly cannot recall all of the prostitution situations they've been in one way or the other. There are folks who cannot recall all of the one-night stands, and that's okay. If we write down what we can recall and then lump the others together in a, in a, in a class of things. And then once we've done that, we get another checklist. It's very much like the checklist we've got on the resentment list. It tells us just exactly what to do. And when I'm doing an inventory, I'm, I just write out these things like a continuing column and look at every situation this way. It says, this is middle paragraph on page 69. It says, where have we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Who did we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? And to me, that's just a perfect checklist for it. I look at every entry on there and just follow it out through there. And then that, that's when Bill adds, we got this all down on paper and we looked at it. So I write down where I fall in those categories of, on the checklist with each one of those deals. And this also is the most forward-looking part of the inventory. Uh, Bill spends a lot of time in here talking about how we, what we need to do in the future with regard to our sex life. Um, and um, 
he says that the main test that we subject each relationship to this simple test is it selfish or not. Now, we have to be careful about that because sexual relations are highly emotionally charged and they give us great pleasure on many different levels as well as great pain on many different levels. So just because we are enjoying it does not mean that it's selfish. I mean, we are supposed to enjoy that. Rather, what that means to me is, am I selfishly motivated? Am I using somebody here? Am I being dishonest with somebody? You know, am I, am I putting somebody in a position that I wouldn't want to be in myself? That's what that means to me. And he tells me that that's the yardstick that we use as we go on through life and sobriety. Uh, <clears throat> Again, he says, we treat sex as we would any other problem. We ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. Uh, and then on page 70, we've got the sex prayer. And I have used that an awful lot in sobriety in the years when I was single. Uh, and it's a beautiful prayer. It's the middle paragraph on page 70. And it says, to sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal. Lord, did I need that when I got sober? I was 37 years old, and I think I was emotionally about 12 or 13, which was when I started drinking alcoholically, and I had no idea what to do. I was just nuts. You know, any woman that uh, that couldn't get a part-time job haunting houses that paid any attention to me, I fell hopelessly in love. And, and you know... Uh, Anywhere a week to six weeks later, I thought, oh, my God, if I don't get away from her, I'll die. You know, I'll just die if I don't get out of here. Uh, and it was just awful going through all that. And, and I didn't know whether I was supposed to have sex outside of marriage. I didn't know what kind of woman I was supposed to supposed to be with. I made all these lists. Uh, I even decided one time that I couldn't date vegetarians. I decided that anybody that was that adamant or militant about their food, I probably couldn't get along with them, you know. I had all these lists of, of, of bad things. And, of course, occasionally one would fall back, walk back, and have the misfortune to hit all the checklist on the list. And that, that poor thing and I would have a terrible time. So I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I needed the right ideal. Um, for guidance in each questionable situation, I certainly needed that. For sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. Beautiful prayer and so helpful in that area. And then he goes on again, treat it like anything else. It says, if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. Same solution we got for everything else. Get out of ourselves, quit thinking about it, quit obsessing on ourselves, and get out here and do something for, for somebody else. Having done that, we have completed a fourth step, as the big book Alcoholics Anonymous suggests that we that we do it. Then we move on to uh, to step five, and step five is uh, is in fact a three-part step. Um, step five says, "Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs." Um, it's real easy. We, we zero in on the admitting to another human being, and we forget that that's just one-third of the fifth step, that we also need to admit to God and to admit to ourselves. Now, 
I have never felt it necessary to stand in front of a mirror and read an entire inventory to a mirror. And I've certainly never felt it necessary to get down on my knees and read an entire inventory to God. I have an idea God may know what's in there anyway without me informing God. Uh, what I have done and what has served me fine on it is stand in front of the mirror with the, my written inventory in my hand and say, Don, this is it. This is, this is the truth as best you can come to it today. Uh, you know, admit it to yourself. Don't try to hide from it. Doing the same thing with God, getting on my knees and saying, Mom, Dad, here it is. It's best I can do. I know I couldn't hide anything from you anyway, but I just want you to know I'm going to try to save myself the misery of trying to do that, that this is, that this is me. So I don't need to do a lot on that, but I need to do what steps say. And this step says that I admit it not only to another person, but to God and to myself, and I'm much better off if I comply with that. doesn't take two minutes to do it but I'm much better off if I do it. Because remember, this is not about, this is not a psychological exercise. This is not a self-help deal. This is a grace deal. And what I'm trying to do is act humbly by following directions. Because if I knew how this worked, I wouldn't need to be here. You know, if I could see the causal relationship between this cause and that, I wouldn't need to be here. What I need to do, even if I can't see any value in it, but it says in the book that I need to do it, I probably need to do that first. And I probably need to do it simply because it's there. Uh, <clears throat> in winding up the fourth step, by the way, um, we need to be fearless and thorough. We certainly don't need to be slipshod about it. We need to do our very best, but we need to bear in mind that nobody in the history of the world ever did a perfect fourth step. And nobody is ever good doing to do a perfect fourth step. At some point, we have to make an end to it. Better done than perfect. Uh, we have got a wonderful safety net under the fourth step and the tenth step. The continuing to take personal inventory includes going back and picking up anything that we missed in the fourth step. And besides, if we clean the entire house and miss a dust bunny under the bed, it doesn't mean that the whole house cleaning was useless. It just means that when we find the dust bunny, we need to get rid of it. Um, a device that has helped a lot of folks in winding up their fourth step is going ahead and scheduling a fifth step with somebody. Uh, even though they are not done with their fourth step schedule at some time in the future, and that will frequently have the effect of getting you finished with it and going ahead and doing it. Just a, a little practical tip that, that a lot of people use. Um, who do we do our fifth step with as far as another person? Uh, the big book, again, remembering it was written, knowing it would wind up in the hands of a lot of people who had no contact with other recovering people, doesn't give any hint that we ought to even consider doing it with another recovered alcoholic. It talks about doctors, it talks about counselors, it talks about ministers. Uh, it, it even indicates we can do it with a family member, but we need to be real careful with that. Today, we almost invariably do it with our sponsor, and I think that's perfectly fine because the the shape of what recovery is has changed so much that that's appropriate. The wording, if you read it closely, uh, you hear a lot of talk about whether fifth step needs to be done with one person or not. I, I believe from the wording that it, it's pretty well singular. 
that they're pretty well talking about one person. And, and my own personal experience with that is that I need to have another human being walking this earth that knows everything bad about me that there is to know. For that same reason, um, when Cherry died probably 14 years ago, um, I wound up, I called it 10th step work, uh, but I wound up doing what looked like a new fourth step, and I wound up doing what sounded like a new fifth step with somebody else because I'm just my personal choice. I need to have a living human being walking this earth with me that knows everything bad about me that there is to know. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about listening to fifth steps because the book is completely silent on that. Um, since it didn't contemplate that any of us would be doing that, but rather people who were not in recovery actually listening to the steps. But today we do an awful lot of it. Um, to me, that is a very passive endeavor. Uh, when I'm listening to a fifth step, I am not a counselor. I'm not trying to help that person figure out something so that they're going to get some, aha, eureka, I found it, now I see the light. I'm simply there to let them comply with the mandate of the step by telling another human being the exact nature of their wrongs. And the exact nature of the wrongs, um, what that means to me is that if I've had a pattern of robbing liquor stores at, at gunpoint, I don't need to tell the person that I'm doing my fifth step with at 9.30 in the morning on such and such date at the corner of such and such, I robbed this liquor store. And then, at, you know, at 11 o'clock the next week on Tuesday morning, I did this and so. I need to make real sure that, that, that I convey to that person precisely the exact nature of the pattern that I had of sticking a pistol in people's faces and at gunpoint taking their money from them. But I don't need to necessarily go through the chapter and verse of the, of the precise details of each one of them. If I want to do that, and my person listening to the fifth step is willing to sit there and listen to all of it, I don't guess it hurts a thing. But I don't see that the book, uh, that the book requires it. I don't believe that there's any right or wrong length for a fifth, for a fourth step. Uh, I have listened to, to fifth steps that were based on a page and a half fourth step, and some of those seem to be okay. Uh, one fellow who I love, and he knows I talk about this all over the country on tapes, so I don't mind, is John from South Dakota. Uh, John and I had never met, and about eight or nine years ago, he had listened to my tapes, and he called me up and said, uh, Don, uh, I've been looking for eight years for somebody to do my fifth step with, and I've listened to your tape, and I think you're the guy. Uh, and, and said, I'd like to come to Louisville and do my fifth step with you. And I said, let's have at it, John. So we found a weekend. He came in. I went out to the airport and met him. He, he came through with what I assumed were his suitcases, you know, one in each hand. Now, nah, that was his fourth step. <laughs> we spent 27 hours that weekend. Go, going through his fourth step, and and that brings me to that brings me to another thing, the methods of doing a fifth step. I've never been able to find but three ways of actually doing it. That's either the person who has done it read it to the to the person who is listening to the fifth step, and make whatever comments they want, or hold it and paraphrase it to the person who's listening to the fifth step, or the third way which is certainly the, the, the quicker of the three. That's what John and I had to do that weekend to get through in 27 hours, <coughs> is the two of you look at it and read it together, 
with the person who has done the inventory explaining or expounding on anything that they want to and the person who is taking the inventory uh, or taking the fifth step asking about anything that they need to or commenting on anything that they need to. And I've never found one of those ways necessarily better than another. Now, I said for me, listening to a fifth step is a real passive thing. That doesn't mean that I always sit there like a knot on a log. Uh, I don't have a policy. The only policy I've got with regard to fifth step is doing my 11th step prayers because that, that performs a miracle. You see, by nature, I am not a listener. I don't believe many alcoholics are. And by nature, without divine intervention, I am not a listener. I can't keep my brain from thinking about what I'm going to say next while you're talking to me. By nature. When I will pray, run through and through my head, that will be done. I'm no longer running the show. That will be done. I'm no longer running the show. And Lord, let me please seek to love, comfort, and understand Lee, rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood by him. A miracle happens. I become what I am not. I become a listener. The first thing you know, I'm able to really listen to that person. And when I give my interest, attention, and love to that person, regardless of how dull the details of their life may otherwise seem, that human being in their story that they're telling me becomes the most interesting thing in this world. And if in the process of doing that I feel like I need to add something, and, and probably more often than any time it's when somebody is talking about or I can see they're getting ready to talk about something that they really think is the worst thing in the world that nobody else ever did. And, of course, you know, usually at least half the alcoholics have done it, you know, and all of them think they're the only one that was ever that common. You know, I'll make some comments about my own uh, my own experience or the fact that, you know, a bunch of fifth steps I've listened to, half of them have got that in it and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that seems to be helpful to people sometimes. And whatever, I mean, I have even said to some folks, uh, you know, this isn't the way that I read the book that you do your fourth step. I'll go ahead if you want to do your fifth step more comfortable with it and we'll do that. But, but I want you to know that, that it's not the way I read the book that the inventory should have been done. I want to give you the option that if you want to go back and do it that way and let's start up, start over, we can do it. Uh, and, and I've, always gotten a good reaction to that. That's never caused any problem. You know, I'm never telling anybody, get out of here, you go do it right. Because if they want a fifth step, what they've got there, who am I to ultimately say what that person needs to do that's their inventory? Um, I do think I have a responsibility to tell them if it's not what I see the book telling me to do. If it's not what I did, I have a responsibility to tell them that. But I don't think I have the right to tell them, you haven't done it right, and you go do it right and come back to me and do it. Um, <clears throat> I didn't have um, a great feeling of the world lifting, uh, li lifting off my shoulders when I did my fifth step. It was more a wrung out, you know, kind of emotionally drained feeling. Uh, and yet I got all the good benefits, I believe, from the fifth step. So don't, don't let it throw you off if you do a fifth step and you don't have this wonderful euphoria that, oh my God, I'm free immediately. Because I didn't have that and lots of folks that I know have, have not had it. And that doesn't keep the fifth step from, from working. Having done that,
we get to the fifth step promises. Um, and I'm going to read these two. They're on page 75, the middle paragraph. It says, once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. So next time somebody asks you when that's supposed to happen, you can tell them. The book is very clear when it happens. Uh, the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Pretty strong promises. Having done the fifth step, and I'll tell you what I did with regard to having done the fifth step. I had read what the next uh, roughly page, if you count the bottom of 75 where it winds up talking about the fifth step, is and the top of 76 where the, that half a page is all that the big book devotes to step six and seven. We got less than half a page on six and seven. But after doing five, we got wonderfully precise instruction. It tells us where to go, what to do, how much time to, to take to do it. It says that after we finish our fifth step, we go home. We get the big book down. We spend one hour reviewing the first five steps making sure we haven't scrimped on anything. If we feel sure that we have uh, that we have done well enough on it, then we move right on to step six and seven. I believed by that time I had come to believe that, that God was in charge of this thing, and it seemed clear to me that I'd done my fourth and fifth step, and I'd formed a picture of what a spiritual dawn ought to look like. And it seemed clear to me that six and seven were where, with God's help, and I had gotten that far that I knew I had to have God's help, I went to work on me to make me into what I had decided a spiritual dawn ought to be. And I went to work on that in good faith and in earnest. And I didn't have any bad goals. The goals were good goals. And the tools I was using were things like prayer, rigorous honesty, steps, Sponsors, meetings, outside counseling. I was using great tools. And what happened for the next roughly eight years after I did my, I did my fifth step? Whatever character defect was making my self-centered but uncomfortable and embarrassing me usually had something to do with money or women. Uh, I would grab it by the collar. And I would use all of those things on it, and I would slam it up against the wall and say, Come here, God, give me a little help, and we'll get rid of this sucker. And nothing ever happened. God never showed up. So I wound up nine years sober, and in many ways, the first nine years of my sobriety were, I mean, they were so wonderful that, that I don't mind calling them enchanted. You know, they were just the miracles that happened from a hopeless drunk that everybody knew was going to die, including myself, who had destroyed everything, to God bringing me to such wonderful things which you hear in my story of reconciliation with my, with my child, getting my law license back, success uh, in terms of, of finance, success in terms of the legal community not only accepting me back but giving me honors and that sort of thing. I, I had 
by God incidents, I talked at my first conference when I was 22 months sober, and people started saying nice things to me. Will you talk here? Will you talk there? Will you be my sponsor? So I had become a circuit speaker just, uh, you know, very, very early in sobriety. By nine, the time I was nine years sober, I'd done a lot of that. I was sponsoring 40 to 50 people. And relationships with the opposite sex and financial chaos were killing me every day. And God, I was working so hard on those things. And with regard to the money, I didn't want to be rich. All I wanted was just for the chaos and the pain to stop. And with regard to the boy-girl thing, I didn't want all the women. All I wanted was just a reasonably sane, monogamous relationship with one woman where she and I could be reasonably comfortable and go on about life. I didn't want anything bad, but none of it was working, and I had no idea. I had no idea what was wrong. I was working so hard to make me into what I had decided a spiritual don ought to be. Well, Cherry, my original sponsor, had died. And in May of 1990, 13 years ago this month, I wound up going to Cleveland and spending a weekend up there with, with Tom B. and a bunch of old heads. Tom had been sober 29 years at that time. And the weekend that I was there, there was a Cleveland-Akron AA golf tournament. Now, I, I don't play golf, never have played golf. Um, but there were a bunch of old boys from Cleveland that were there with Tom that weekend. They treated Tom like a newcomer with uh with 29 years there there was one old boy there that year that weekend who had drank with dr bob well i had told tom really really i, I had told tom by phone and i'd asked him to be my sponsor he and i'd talked together somewhere and, and i knew cherry was was gone and i needed a sponsor and, and i told tom uh you know that that i was dying you know, I told him about all the things that were going wrong in the financial and the boy-girl area of my life, and it was just getting worse, and, and I was dying inside. Well, something began to happen this weekend, and going back to earlier this morning when I talked about that, that I've got something to do with my burning bushes, that at least I've got the bellows, you know, to keep the fire going. If you had asked me on the airplane back from that weekend, what has happened this weekend, Don? I might or might not have mentioned anything or much about step six and seven. Okay? Now, some comments were made that weekend, and a process began in my mind. Before I got out of the airport, one old boy said, Oh, yeah, sober about nine or ten years. That's about the time most folks start to look at steps six and seven. And I remember being so insulted with that, that this old fool didn't know who he, who he was talking to. You know, here I was, circuit speaker, had listened to somewhere between 50 and 100 fifth steps by that time. And he was telling me that I was a stage where most folks began to look at step six and seven. Now, I have since learned, and this is important, I believe, I have since learned you don't have to wait until you've been sober nine or ten years to approach six and seven correctly. It's just that if you blow past them the way I did and a lot of people seem to do, nine or ten years is about the time most of us run into the brick wall, just absolutely hit the wall. But you don't have to wait to the brick wall to approach it properly. Uh, when I got back from that, two days after I got back in Louisville, I went to a noon meeting that I hadn't been to in two years. It had been just a straight discussion meeting when I... Uh, had went before they had changed it to a step meeting. They were discussing six and seven. That weekend, I took a girlfriend on.
motorcycle trip to the Smoky Mountains, wanted to go to a meeting on Saturday, rode over two mountains in the rain, almost drowned, couldn't find the meeting, had to go to the police station. They sent me to an old retired nun who finally sent me to the meeting. I walk in soaking wet, middle of the meeting. It's a discussion group, and they're discussing six and seven. Uh, and, and I began to get the point. And what happened as a result of that weekend? was that I began to realize that I had done about everything wrong with regard to 6 and 7 that I could possibly do. You see, I knew the 7th step prayer so well that I could easily have sat down at a table with you and quoted it backwards. If you had given me five minutes, I could have started with the last word and worked you back to the first word, no problem. But I have realized now that there's a big difference for me in knowing and realizing. And it shocked me. I've been sober a lot of years because I'm a word guy. I've, I've made my way through this world with words, drunk and sober. And it had never dawned on me that the word realize is a form of the word real. And that when I have realized something, what has happened is that that has become real within me. So different than knowing it. The things I've known for 30 years that I haven't realized, that haven't turned into reality inside me. You see, I thought that prayer just had to really mean that I was asking God to remove all my defects of character and that it had to really mean that necessarily the ones that I thought needed to be removed were the ones that needed to be removed. And the most malignant thing of all it seemed clear to me that the ones that were making my self-centered but uncomfortable and embarrassing me were the ones that needed to go. And that's not what the prayer says. The prayer asks God to remove each and every defect of character that stands in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows. And you see, I have no idea which ones they are. I don't have a clue. My problem with perfection was it turned out not to be what I'd thought it was all my life. All my life I'd thought my problem with perfection was my inability to attain perfection. That has never mattered. I never got that far. I can't recognize perfection. If God gave me the power to become anything or anybody that I ought to be right this minute, sitting up here in front of you guys, boring you to death, 22 years sober, I would be like a blind dog in a butcher shop. I'd have no idea where to turn, no idea who or what I ought to become. And you see those character defects that were making me so uncomfortable that I was praying to be gone? For me to pray for a character defect to be gone because it's making me uncomfortable is precisely the same spiritual error as me praying for a bright red Ferrari. I'm praying for my own selfish ends, and it's not going to work. The book says you can easily see why. took me nine years to easily see why. And as far as it being where I went to work on my character defects with God's help, referring again to that old great big book that is not conference-approved material, the 12 and 12, which, by the way, I'm not a big fan of 12 and 12. don't use it a lot in my life, but I do use it on 6 and 7 because it's got a lot of good discussion on 6 and 7, and the big book has so little on it. Uh, in the 12 and 12, 
it says specifically, of myself I'm nothing, the Father does the work. In Bill's story in the big book, when he's running through what really amounts to an outline of the steps, it refers to that. Of myself I'm nothing, the Father does the work. For nine years sober, my magical brain edited that. And by the time it got to my brain, what it really meant was, I'm not enough, and I have to have some help from God. And that's not what it says. It says, of myself, I'm nothing. Not that I'm not enough. The Father does the work. The bottom line is, I can no more effectively work on any of my other character defects than I worked on drinking and taking dope. I have to lay them at my God's feet and say, Mom, Dad, I don't know. I don't even know what's there. I've done the best I can in my fourth step, but I don't even really know what's there. I certainly don't know what's supposed to leave. And I don't know what you're supposed to take and what you're supposed to leave with me. But I'm really renewing my third step. There's a whole lot of renewal of third step in the seventh step. It's kind of a, kind of an informed third step. Uh, I'm coming to my God and I'm saying, Mom, Dad, here it is. I'm really coming to you as a little child. And I'm going to try real hard to stitch. I don't know where we're going or how we're supposed to get there or any of that stuff. But I'm going to, even though I'm scared and I don't want to do it, I'm going to try to take that stitch in the right place and I'm going to quit trying to figure out the patterns of my life. In May of 1990, I began trying to do that. And, you know, when I was first told that, I had some reactions to it. And one of them was, my God, as much trouble as I've got working, as hard as I'm working on these character defects, if I quit working on them, it'll be like being run over by a freight train or an avalanche. You know, they'll absolutely kill me. And what they told me on that, they said, Don, when you turned booze and dope over to God, you didn't give yourself permission to drink or drug just because you wanted to, did you? Said you accompanied that with a resolve to a step at a time, try real hard to do the next right thing. Said, that's exactly what you're doing here. That's what makes six and seven work, is after you've made that decision to lay yourself at your God's feet, to get up and redouble your efforts at doing that next right thing, taking that stitch in the right place and going right on. Uh, and they explained to me that that is faith. I started stumbling in that direction. Oh, another thing, I said, you know, you guys are talking about sainthood here. There is no way that I can give up my aspirations and my dreams and the ideas of what I think I ought to be to just, it's a death of self to, to, to come to God and say, you just make me anything. I'm no longer anything. I don't want to be anything. They said, ah, we know, but said, if you'll just try to act like a person would act, if they felt that way, you'll be just fine. It'll work just perfectly. And for the last 13 years, I've been stumbling in that direction. I'm going to tell you how well that's worked. And some of these things, some of these things embarrass me to say. Uh, but I'm not talking about me because remember, I've already told you, I completely destroyed my life on every, every level. I started stumbling this way in May of 1990. And I've been stumbling this way for 13 years, and I do mean stumbling. If I had made a list of everything that I wanted in my life in May of 1990 when I was nine years sober, everything, what I wanted in my relationship life, what I wanted in my financial life, what I wanted in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous, my relationship with my family, my friends, my work, 
houses I live in, cars I drive, everything. And I'd given that list to God, and God had said, I am sick of your whining. I'm going to give you exactly what you have asked for. And I had put on that list the very best that I thought was possible for me. Please believe me, guys. I would have shortchanged myself in every single area of my life. Every single area. When I, I can't even envision what my God's got in store for me. When I'm willing to come as a little child, when I'm willing to walk that way, God has taken me in spite of my imperfection in doing it. God, I, I celebrated 12 years married uh, four or five months ago to my Sharon, who I, I had no idea that life could be like this with another human being. I had none at all. Uh, Sharon is not somebody that I would have picked while I was using my brain and my list and my best judgment on on picking these things. The only trick I used on Sharon was that 11th step trick, and that'll work on anybody, of praying to love, comfort, and understand her rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood by her. That's the only, that's magic in human relations. I don't care what it is. Any kind of human relations. Whether somebody mad enough at you to kill you or whether it's waking your child up with a kiss. Praying to seek to love, comfort, and understand them rather than to be loved, comfort, and understand. You know, my, my psychologist friends and a lot of folks that are deep in the counseling tell me that it ain't healthy to have a relationship in which you don't argue. Feels awful healthy to me. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, my finances have just straightened out, uh, uh, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, my, my Lord, from when I was nine years sober, uh, I, I, the only credit card I had was my daughter was in college and I had a, I had a family card on her American Express card. Uh, I was still in the midst of trying to pay off that chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, I, I have a gorgeous home. I have retirement accounts. I have cars that are embarrassing. I'm such a redneck. I like to drive such flashy cars. I have, I, I have stock, I have brokerage accounts. Uh, I am financially substantial. And I don't know how I got there. Uh, it happened, it happened in such wonderful ways that, uh, have so much to do with my brilliance and my hard work. Um, I was still a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt from the old drinking when I was sober, probably, oh, 12 years. And uh, there was a secretary working in the, in the office, but a little more than that, maybe 12, 14 years. A secretary working in the office for another guy who wasn't even working for me, but she had, didn't have a car when she went to work there, and the guy had signed for her for a car, had bought it and sold it to her own credit so she'd have a car. The guy's wife got mad at him for doing that, and he had to fire the secretary. I didn't think that was fair. I went home and talked to Sharon and said, Sharon, you know, I'd like to offer to, to, um, give this little girl the money, uh, you know, to pay for that car, and Sharon said, fine, let's do that. Sounds like a good thing. I went in and offered her the money. Um, she cried and thanked me and said, no, uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Uh, she left the office 30 days later at the phone rang about 8.30 in the morning she referred a case to me I put about 40 hours work in it over a period of 9 months and made $300,000 so all I did was just try to help a kid you know nothing and God took care of it 
I've got a line of young lawyers that would stretch to that wall that want to practice cases with me. Not because I'm such a hot shot, because there's something that, that they see that they don't understand and they like. And all it is is that on my good days, I'm not down there to make money and I'm not down there to win cases. I'm down there, I'm not down there to look good on my good days. I'm down there to try to help God's kids do what they need to have done for free and for fun because I want to. And it makes something out of me that's completely different from me. It makes something out of me that I'm not. It makes God's a whole lot better lawyer than I am. God's better at everything than I am. But all that magic has happened to me. And, and I, as you can tell by my emotionality and so on, six and seven have been really, really important in my life in the last 13 years. And they have been where my sobriety has, has focused. And I just I want to point this out. You know, those character defects that I wanted gone and that I thought had no useful purpose whatsoever, it's extremely clear to me that 80% of the time when my phone rings and it's somebody either wanting me to go speak somewhere or asking me to help them with something, Alcoholics Anonymous, that phone is only ringing because I had character defects that persisted so long in sobriety and so painfully in sobriety and so publicly. And people are aware that that happened to me and that I somehow managed not to drink a day at a time and keep on stumbling. And I was able to get to a better place with it. And that's what I've got to share. (laughs) That's what I've got to give. While I was going through it, I was completely blind to that. You see, I don't know what's right. I don't know what the way things are supposed to be or who I'm supposed to be. And and people ask me so many times, uh, I've you know, been asked to do day-long things on 6 or 7, and I've done them uh, sometimes by myself with other people. But it all boils down to that when somebody asks me, what is this magic that you have found with 6 and 7, Don? Because everybody's just like me. We think there's got to be something really complex and esoteric here. You know, there's got to be something we're missing. Yeah, it is. It's something we're missing because it's so simple that we just can't believe that all that power's in it. It is just that simple. It's coming to my God as a little child and saying, Mom, Dad, I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I don't know who I am. I don't know how to get there. But you tell me where to take the stitch. I'm going to give up trying to figure out the pattern before I start stitching. I'm going to leave the pattern up to you, and I'm going to try to make the stitch. That's all in the world that's been to it. But, but six and seven have been such a, such an absolute, uh, absolute joy for me. They have been the, uh, they have been the cornerstone of my life. Um, I do want to go ahead and talk a little bit and start talking about eight and nine because I'd like to leave most of our last. Uh, last session to talk about the maintenance steps. The maintenance steps are real special to me, too, because, you know, once we've done one through nine, that's where we live. One thing I do want to mention, though, that I should have mentioned right after the fifth step, don't do your fifth step and stop. You know, just like if you sit in discussion meetings and listen, you might form the impression that a resentment list is doing a fourth step. You also might form an impression that having done a fourth and fifth step is having done the steps. It's not. And I can't tell you how many people have called me up two months or two years or five years after they have done a a fifth step with me or somebody else and said, Don, I don't understand it. I did my inventory and did my fifth step, and things are not better. They are worse. 
invariably I'll find out when I talk to them they haven't gone on with 6 through 9 and of course things are worse 5 and 6 or rather 4 and 5 don't heal anything all 4 and 5 do is dig up a bunch of rotting corpses and I know this is an ugly picture but it's the best one I can think of it digs up a bunch of rotting corpses that we have had half buried, stamped down in the ground for years, and it strolls it all around our lives. And if we just do four and five and stop, sure, we're going to wind up feeling worse because those things weren't buried right, but at least they were buried. And now we've dug them up, strewn them around there. It's going on through eight and nine that gets those things properly reburied. So do ourselves a favor. Let's don't stop after four and five. We are just in the process. We haven't finished a thing. We have got to go on through eight and nine to get things properly buried. Uh, I think I already mentioned earlier that eight is a two-part step. First part's making a list of persons we had harmed. The second part's becoming willing to make amends to them all. It's important to me that I treat it as a two-part step because I won't get all the names down. If I've got my brain working about, oh, Lord, I'm going to have to go to make amends to these people or I need to be willing to make amends to them. So what I need to do is just simply just simply make the list, putting down everybody that it comes to my mind that I might have harmed. I don't think there's any stage of the steps where it's more critical to talk with our sponsor than it is at 8 and 9 because a lot of damage can be done by going off half-cocked on doing amends. Once I've done eight, then I meet with my sponsor. I usually have found out that for most of us, a lot of the people that are listed in eight, we don't really need to make amends to because we tend to think because we are embarrassed and have shown our butt that they necessarily belong on our eighth-step list. And that's not what it's talking about. It's where we harm somebody else. Those people, most we cause them usually was a little fleeting disgust. You know, we haven't truly harmed them. Uh, and eighth and nine are not about making us feel better. They are absolutely not about making us feel better. They're not even about us. In fact, the book tells us specifically, I think it's on page 77, that our real purpose here was what it says that at the moment we are trying to put our lives in order. But that is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people around us. So just like all the steps, it's reaching out to others. This is a selfish illness with an other-oriented and a God-oriented solution to it. So in doing 8 and 9, we want to we want to bear in mind this isn't about us. This isn't about making us feel better. This isn't even really ultimately about putting our lives in order. This is about fitting ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people around us. Uh, as far as what amends are, um, they are sometimes apologies in my experience, but certainly not always. You know, we think in terms of saying I'm sorry as being an amends. I was sponsored that that's only an amends if part of what I've done is hurt the person's feelings and that it seems likely that the person is going to feel better, that I'm going to amend those feelings by apologizing to them. The way it was put to me is that if when I was drinking, I shot and killed your cow. Okay, if you and I have a personal relationship where you are offended and hurt because I, Don, shot and killed your cow, 
then part of what I definitely need to do is go to you and give you an apology for that because that may help mend the way you're feeling about it. See, the technical definition of amend is to try to put things back as close as I can to the way they were before I did my bad behavior for the other person, for the other person, not for me. So on the other hand, if you and I were strangers and I shot and killed your cow, I haven't hurt your feelings with regard to me and our relationship. So I may not need to necessarily go to you and apologize. But here's the kicker. In either instance, whether it's personal and I need to go to you and apologize, or whether you're a stranger and it wasn't your feelings that were hurt, in either instance, I definitely need to make sure that I drop off a cup of quarts of milk a week at your house. Because that's what I've deprived you of, and I need to try to make it as close as I can to the way it would have been if I had not done my not not done my bad behavior. Um, when we get to nine, it says we made direct amends to to such persons wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I am not another. I have heard people, you know, take the position that they were an other, you know, with regard to their own amends. I've never seen that work out very well for anybody. Uh, it just simply doesn't work. However, my wife is another. My children are others. Uh, the people who work for me are others. The people who depend on me are others. The people that I'm able to be with and work around with in Alcoholics Anonymous are others. And I do need to consider that before I do the impressive heroics that the book talks about of going and turning myself in for nothing, for something when no good good purpose may be served and it may cause a lot of injury to other people. Uh, the obvious, but sometimes we need to be told the obvious. The big book talks about this example specifically. Uh, if I've had an affair with my neighbor's wife and I get sober and I'm doing the eighth and ninth step, I don't need, and he doesn't know about it, I don't need to go over and say, hey, Joe, you know, you don't know about it, but I've been sleeping with your wife for a couple of years. Man, I'm really sorry. Uh, Joe is not going to feel better when I leave. Yeah. See, so I need to keep focused on the other person. It's not about me. I might unburden my soul if Joe doesn't kill me before I leave, uh, but, but, but I have hurt Joe more than I've helped. I've also hurt the wife that I have no right to hurt. Now, so I need, that's what it means when it says I make direct amends except when to do so would injure them or others, and I don't need to use my own judgment on it. That's why I need my sponsor at least as badly as I do at any stage of the steps when I'm doing with eight and nine. I need somebody who is not personally involved, that's got a good head on their shoulders with regard to sobriety, a solid basis to say, well, Don, I don't believe I'd do that if I were you. Or, you know, I believe I would handle that this way or that way. I truly need that help so much at that time. Uh, in the ninth step uh, is where we get one of our most uh, most misquoted. Uh, I mean, it's not really misquoted. It's kind of quoted out of context. Uh, how many times have we heard people say, and it's usually said about in this tone of voice, by God, I'm one of God's people, and I don't have to crawl before anybody. <laughs> and that's in there. But they miss the sentence that's immediately before it on page 83. 
it says that if we are sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping, then as God's people we stand on our feet, we don't crawl before anyone. But they miss that precedent that before I can get there, I need to make sure that I am sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. Uh, we've got, of course, the promises, and all of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the eighth, step prom- eighth and ninth step promises. They are beautiful promises, uh, and uh, I think we won't read those because most of us, uh, are, as I say, are, are real aware of those. And I'm going to go ahead and take a break with the idea that having finished nine, our ego will be deflated, but don't worry, it'll come right back. Uh, and I'll see you back in about 15 minutes. How am I going to make amends to the Bar Association for all the disgrace that I brought on them? And, and it really was. It was public, it was loud, and it was really, really nasty. Uh, by simply living the amends and being the best, the best I can be a day at a time to try to be a credit to them. Uh, tell you real quickly how that's worked. Uh, the things that I thought could never see the light of day that were so terrible, uh, they have asked me to come speak to the state bar convention, uh, more than once, uh, and tell my story. And they give people continuing legal education credit in ethics for listening to my story. I've done that with several bar associations all all over the country. Uh, I just simply try to do the best I can a day at a time. So that's important that I understand that amends are are sometimes, uh, you know, if you've stolen a $13 pair of sunglasses from a convenience store and they don't know you and you don't know them, you need to figure out some way to get them $13 to change that bottom line $13 back the right way because that's the damage you did and you didn't do any other damage. But most of the amends where we're involved with, with, with people that are close to us, I, I had the first part of what really was an apology and letting them know where I was and what I wanted to do. And many times, many times I've said to people, I don't know what to do to set this right. Is there anything that I can do that will make you feel better? The usual reply is, hey, just do what you're doing, stay sober, and that'll be fine. Although I have gotten some suggestions back from people about what to do. So if I don't know what to do, I think it's perfectly all right to say, hey, you know, I don't know what to do. I want to set this right, but what can I do for you? See, I know what, I know what I did to you, but I don't know what that did to you. And I don't know what its real effect was on you. So is there anything I can do to help you here? And I think that's perfectly all right. Uh, I think they usually need to be eyeball to eyeball, although there's some situations where a note may be better. And the, the test for that's just like it is on everything else. Which is going to make the person receiving their amends feel better? And there's sometimes when a confrontation is not apt to make them feel better regardless of what I try to say when what needs to be said is better said for their feelings in a note or a letter that I send them. So that, again, needs to be needs to be determined solely in terms of how the other person feels. Having completed that, we have completed the first nine steps of recovery, and the way I was sponsored, I'm in a state of recovery, and my ego is deflated, but like I wound up by saying, it's not going to stay that very long. 
the human ego comes right back, most resilient thing in this universe. When one of us dies in a gutter, we don't die feeling like how terrible and low we are. We die thinking about how special and intelligent we are and about all those idiot square johns that lived that square life and weren't special and intelligent like we were. Uh, that, that ego just keeps coming back. Um, so we have to live on 10, 11, and 12. You know, in saying that we live in recovery from alcoholism or that we recovered alcoholics, the big book is not indicating in any way that we ever cured of alcoholism. I mean, this thing is incurable, it's progressive, and it's fatal. But we can live in a state of recovery. We can live where we are not ravaged by alcoholism. We can live a day at a time so that we are not crippled or limited by our alcoholism. In other words, we can live a day at a time as long as we do what we need to maintain our spiritual condition like anybody else. And, of course, 10, 11, and 12 are called the maintenance steps. And let me talk about the maintenance steps in general for just a minute. They are, of course, what we live on every day after we've done the first nine steps. I had a misunderstanding about what this book says when it begins to talk about the maintenance steps. And that misunderstanding caused me to be real uncomfortable for really a number of years sober. And it was another one of those deals where I'm so sure I know what the book says that I don't really look at precisely the words that are down there in black and white. For three or four years sober, I thought that my daily reprieve from alcoholism was contingent on my spiritual condition. And that's not what that book says. As long as I thought it was contingent on my spiritual condition, I'd panic because there were days when I didn't feel like my spiritual condition was very good. You know, when I feel like I felt like I was just separated from everything and brain was spinning and scared and that sort of thing. Uh, so I thought, oh, my Lord, my spiritual condition is crap, so I may be struck drunk. On the other hand, I was pretty smug when I was feeling all spiritual and at one with God and that sort of thing. I felt like I was bulletproof. Well, that wasn't right either. Because what that book says is that my daily reprieve is contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And please listen to me here because this was a miracle for me. It was one of those deals about understanding what attitude, like understanding what attitude really meant, because I was just a, a dry leaf out here in the wind, blowing, blowing along, and if my spiritual condition was good, then I was okay, I wouldn't get drunk that day, but if my spiritual condition was crap, then I was just powerless. I might get struck drunk. Go back to the car analogy. I love cars, so I like to talk about cars. If I had a car sitting out there, that car would have a condition. Whatever the condition of that car was, it would just be there and it would be there. And I wouldn't have any power to immediately change that, that, that condition of the car. On the other hand, there is a process of maintaining that automobile. And that is all action over which I have 100% control. The difference in my life and my sobriety is this. I can wake up feeling spiritually bankrupt, not wanting to get down on my knees, 
make myself get down on my knees anyway, say the words even though they sound hollow that morning, pick up the meditation books, look at them, be so distracted that I can't remember the last word I just tried to look at, make my gratitude list even though I don't feel grateful for crap. I'm just writing down things that I might, that I'd be grateful for if I had any sanity, uh, and going through the morning. And when Joe calls to complain about the girlfriend, uh, instead of having the secretary tell Joe, I'm busy, you know, I'm tied up with other things and I don't have time to listen to Joe's crap about the girlfriend and have her put through the call and say, good morning, Joe. How are you, buddy? What can I do for you? How can I help you? When noontime comes, there's a meeting across the river from my office, and uh, uh, I've been to that meeting an awful lot. I know everybody that goes there. I don't hear very well. The acoustics are terrible. I don't hear 20% of what's said in that meeting. doesn't matter because I've heard it all anyway. You know, heard everything that they've got to say. Uh, real sick of hearing a lot of it. And I'd be real busy and have a lot of important things to do, but I'd make myself go to that meeting anyway. Then at the end of that day, I'd go through the rest of the day that way. And the end of that day, I'd get down on my knees and thank God for that day. And here's what I know now. On that day, even though I felt like my spiritual condition was crap, I am absolutely guaranteed that I won't take a drink of alcohol. And that is in my control for that day. The maintenance, the action, that is the maintenance of my spiritual condition, that's what gets me my reprieve not the spiritual condition itself. And that's such a difference. My daily reprieve went from something that was beyond my control to something that's absolutely in my control. And I already mentioned it in another context earlier, but there's a flip side to that. You know, I feel like I'm in such an exalted position that I don't need to get on my knees because my whole life's a prayer. I can say to my secretary when Joe calls, oh, I feel for Joe and I love him as I love all living things. Uh, but, uh, but, but I'm so involved here. I've, I've just moved to another, to, to another higher level of consciousness with regard to my spirituality. And I found the most interesting little piece of lint in my belly button here. Uh, and, and I just can't interrupt this spiritual trek of mine to talk to poor Joe. And I cannot go to that meeting at noon for the reasons that I gave you. And I have, ex I have left the cage open on the monster that lives inside me. On that day, I may get drunk as a hoot out, regardless of the fact that I started out feeling like my spiritual condition was so great. goes back to the same thing. My deal, what, what, what my recovery is, is not what I'm feeling like at any given time. My recovery is what I'm doing. That's what my recovery is based on, is simply on the actions. book tells me that my very life depends on the constant thought of others and how I meet their needs. makes it very clear as that. It doesn't sound much like a selfish program. Moving into step 10 itself, uh, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I already mentioned that there's a pretty good case that continued might be the most important word in, in all of the 12 steps. Uh, where the book talks about uh, the 10th step that first paragraph mentions continued or continued three or four times. It's just keeping going on. And, you know, the truth is I've learned very little new in the last 22 years that's been of value to me. When I get off center today, you know what I need to do? Exactly the same things I needed to do when I was 30 days sober. 
I need to go to more meetings. I need to talk to my sponsor. I need to pray a little more. I may need to bear down on the steps. Exactly the same thing. It's not these new great revelations and moving to different levels. Now, God will throw me into fourth dimensions of existence, but that's going to happen as kind of a side effect. What I need to do is continue. What I need to do is just go right back. I've got a little thing uh, that, that I do when I start getting disjointed. I try to make 10 meetings in 10 days where I'm not the stupid speaker. You know, try to make 10 meetings because going to a meeting where you're speaker kind of counts and it kind of doesn't count. You know, and, and just going to 10 meetings in 10 days will almost always, will almost always get me back on track and I don't feel disjointed anymore. So it's just a matter of continuing, of doing the things I, I need to do. To do. <laughs> the tenth step says, continue to take inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Well, continuing to take inventory to me means a number of things. It means that I, it's a safety net under my fourth step. It means that as I go through the day, I try to inventory constantly what I'm doing. It also means at the end of the day um, that... Uh, on page 86, which is actually included uh, in the 11th step, but to me it's part of inventorying too. When I retire at night, it says that I constructively review the day. It gives me a checklist. Where was I resentful? Where was I selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do I owe an apology? Have I kept something to myself that should be discussed with another person at once? And then the questions start getting hard. Was I kind and loving toward all? What could I have done better? Was I thinking of myself most of the time, or was I thinking of what I could do for others, of what I could pack into the stream of life? And to me, running through that at the end of the day is part of the continuing to take inventory. And that that, 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 that is an interesting exercise from a lot of different standpoints, but one of them is, if I've had a good day, man, I'd fly through that thing 30 seconds. But if I've had a day where I've been real uncomfortable, I may be there an hour, you know, answering the questions about where I was selfish, dishonest, what I should have discussed with somebody else, what I should have done different, thinking about myself instead of trying to see what I could pack into the stream of life. Uh, <clears throat> now, as far as when, when I'm wrong, promptly admitting it. There's a part of me that likes to change that word to eventually. Uh, and I was, Cherry told me, and Cherry's exactly right, because I've lived it out at least a thousand times. If I want to be comfortable eventually, I can admit it eventually. But if I want to be comfortable promptly, I better admit it promptly. Because that's when the comfort's going to come. And that's another function of the steps. The steps, I was told, are here for our comfort. They're here for our comfort. And I don't need to do these steps any more than I want to be comfortable. If I don't want to be comfortable, I may not need to, need, may not need to fool with them. But if I want to be comfortable, if I want to treat that ego disorder, that inability to be comfortable inside myself, that obsession with myself, then I, I better live with the steps. Um, step 10 has got some interesting um, things that are taken up there. That's where the AA code is uh, on page 84. That uh, <coughs> our code is uh, love and tolerance of others is our code. 
And uh, I already mentioned that earlier today, that to me that's not efficiency and responsibility, although those are wonderful things. And also there aren't any exceptions to it. Um, you know, we tend to whatever is so important to us that we find it intolerable, we tend to make an exception to that. And I found that, as I said earlier, tolerance isn't an issue until I found the situation intolerable. And then I need to really make sure that I tolerate it. It doesn't say that love and tolerance for others uh, is our code except where the smoking issue is concerned. Uh, and I've been both a smoker and a non-smoker in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and uh, really been a non-smoker for more years than I've been a smoker. As a non-smoker, I needed to be respectful of the smokers. As a smoker, I needed to be respectful of the non-smokers. It's simply like everything else. The, the, the code applies to everything in my life. Uh, also, it tells us that when we get to step 10, we can start back exercising our will all we want to, that our will has become our friend again, as long as we're using it to try to conform it with God's will tells me that I take a vision of God's will into my daily activity and I turn my thoughts to how I can be helpful to others. Um, some beautiful stuff in step 10. Step 11. Now, until I got into my relationship with step 6 and 7 that happened 13 years ago, step 11 was really where I lived. I just love step 11, and I talked about step 11 all the time. So step 11 is really, really an important, important, uh, important step to me. I remember when I, and by the way, I was sponsored and I sponsor people by telling them this. I think you can start with step 11 anytime. I don't think you need to finish the first nine steps in order to start with step 11. I think you can start doing things with step 11 immediately, and I think it's a good thing to do it. I remember asking Cherry just when and how I ought to begin in the day trying to, uh, uh, to improve my conscious contact with God. And he said, well, let's see what the book says, Don. Uh, he says, it says here that on awakening... We think about the 24 hours ahead and we consider our plans and we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. He said, Don, if that had, that had meant that after you went to the bathroom that you asked God to direct your thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from selfishness, self-pity, self-seeking motives, uh, it would have said that. It was said after we peed, we asked God to do such and such. Said, but it doesn't say that. It says on awakening. It said, in your case, there are a couple of real good reasons that you need to do that on awakening. One is you need to follow directions. You need terribly to follow the directions that end the book. And said, number two, you are easily crazy enough to ruin the rest of your life between the bed and the bathroom. Said, so you need to get yourself conditioned so that the first thing that runs through your mind when you wake up is, God, please direct my thinking, especially to be divorced. Uh, and over the years, that's pretty well happened. Over the years, that's pretty well when real soon after my eyes fly open, just about every morning, that's what's, that's what's going through my, you know, going through my mind. Uh, I've already mentioned that I, I have never, uh, to my knowledge, missed a morning and night getting on my knees with the praying. Um, and I've already talked about how imperfect I am, about how I feel about that, and uh, 
the, the way sometimes it doesn't feel right, I don't think it's working, don't want to do it, don't have time, but to do it anyway. And it seems to work just fine. In early sobriety, by the way, I would, I would do things after it started working, I, I was afraid I would forget. And I would do things, I didn't have but one pair of shoes, so this was easy. I knew what pair of shoes I'd be putting on. I'd take a piece of paper and wad it up and put it in the toe of the shoe so that when I put on the shoe, I'd feel that, and that would remind me to get on my knees and pray that morning. So so that's been something that, that, that I've just done. Meditation was a little bit harder because, you see, I was a soldier. Uh, I, I wasn't some sort of... Uh, aesthetic monk or something uh, meditation was just too impractical for me you know it was out there where it didn't have much to do with my life even though I had prayed until I had begun to come to believe with regard to that I thought meditation was the most impractical thing that I could imagine like just about everything else my meditation is perhaps the most practical thing that I do in a day uh, what my meditation has consisted of for many years is that I do a little gratitude list in the morning. Uh, most mornings I don't have any trouble thinking of some things that I really do, in fact, feel grateful for. On the really bad mornings, I just write down something I'd be grateful for if I had any sanity. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes I have to have trouble and have to start with my eyes, you know, and a little, little bit ambivalent about that. Uh, and then after I've done that and I, and I do my reading in the morning, I, uh, I've Page 86, 87, and 88 are part of my morning meditation. The third step prayer and the seventh step prayer are, and I have a couple of uh, have a couple of meditation books that I that I read. And uh, something that I do is just serve me well. I've been doing it for gosh, probably 15 years. I've got six things written down on little slips of paper, and those things are are honesty, humility, gratitude. That will be done. I'm no longer running the show. Help God's kids do what they need to have done for free and for fun because I want to. And pray to love, comfort, and understand instead of being loved, comforted, and understood. And I at random, sometimes Sharon, my wife, draws it out for me or I do it at random. I pull out one of those and look at it. And that's the keynote for the day. Now, interestingly... It doesn't really make any difference which one I pull out because if I adhere to any of those six things, I'll act exactly the same way in any situation. But it helps me to have for that day a keynote. And that's my keynote for the day. And many times it will come back to me that, okay, for today, for today, my instance, my keynote that I drew out this morning was pray to love, comfort, and understand rather than to be loved, comfort, and understood. And it, it's helpful. It comes back, just little silly tricks like that. Uh, sometimes I, I take God with me. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I'll... Uh, I'll open the door for God to get in the car. You know, people think you're a little crazy sometimes when you do that. And I don't do that a lot. Uh, I carry on conversations with God that somebody might think I was talking to myself if they were overhearing it. But that helps me with my conscious contact with God. That helps me to improve my conscious contact with God. Uh, <clears throat> but at any rate, after I've done those things, the prayer and the reading and making the gratitude list, then what I do is I make a list of things that if I do them that day, I'll be more comfortable, and if I don't do them, I'll be less comfortable. And they're always things that are perfectly capable of, of accomplishing that day. They're not things like change my life, you know, not things like become 
less this or that or the other. They're things like call Joe back. You know, uh, foul answer in Jones' case. Send Sharon flowers. Get car washed. Make bed. You know, there are things like that. And I don't, I don't have, by the way, compartments in my life. I don't compartmentalize my work life, my AA life, my home life. I just got a life. I'm just as apt to set an appointment for somebody to come in and do a third step or, or fifth step in my office as I am to come in and bring me a retainer on a murder case. You know, I just don't make a division on it. It's just, I just have a life. So those things that I put down there can be in any area of my life. Uh, doesn't matter. Uh, and that has wound up, like I said, being, being perhaps the, the most practical thing that I do in day. Because that works. You know, after about two or three weeks of transferring the same thing every morning to the next list, you not only think it's not working, you think you're about as common as they get. You know, you really get sick of yourself and you think it's not working. But I've kept those things over the years. I've literally got a file drawer full of them. And every once in a while I'll go back and flip through a few months of them. It works. It just doesn't work on my timetable. But it works. All those things wind up getting done. And it's just a real practical thing for me. I already mentioned uh, the, the 11th step in the 12 and 12 is where we find the prayer of St. Francis. It's on page 99 in the 12 and 12, 12 and 12. And of course, what I've mentioned several times, we pray to seek to love, comfort, and understand rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood is directly lifted out of the prayer of St. Francis. So that's very much part of my, uh, a part of my 11th step. Now, I've always done the praying morning and night, and I've had a real, real good batting average on the meditation. But I've had a little problem with the other 98% of the day. You see, there's a tendency to think I'm complying with step 11 if I do that 1% in the morning and that 1% at night, and then lay it all aside for the rest of the day and run on through the day without uh, much thought of it. Doesn't work very well. I've got to do precisely what this book says. The book makes it real, real clear <clears throat> that every day, all day, regardless of what's going on, I humbly say to myself many times that I will be done and that I constantly remind myself that I'm no longer running the show. And guys, there's magic in me to just run it through my head. On the good days when I'm walking from the office to court or wherever I'm going, I'll beat out kind of a rhythm with my feet and run it through my head. That will be done. I'm no longer running the show. That will be done. I'm no longer running the show. And I throw into that, Lord, please let me seek to love, comfort, and understand rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood. Let me tell you something about that love, comfort, and understand deal. Do you know that the only time in my life that I have ever been loved, comforted, and understood to my satisfaction it's when I'm praying that prayer and have been able for a little while to lay aside my demands to be loved, comforted, and understood that I have never one time in my life succeeded in being loved, comforted, and understood to my satisfaction by seeking it. You can't give me enough love to satisfy me. You can't give me enough comfort to satisfy me because, you see, if I make that spiritual mistake of letting my comfort depend 
on people, places, and situations, it doesn't make any difference what the people, places, and situations do. For the first few years I was sober, I thought that what that meant was that they might not work out the way I wanted to and I'd be uncomfortable. That's not what it means. If I make the mistake of letting my comfort depend on them, it makes no difference what they do. If they do exactly what I thought I wanted them to do, what I wanted them to do will change. It'll still leave me, it'll still leave me empty. It won't get done because the spiritual mistake is letting my comfort depend on that. But when I'm in there just trying to help God's kids, trying to love, comfort, and understood, you guys wind up loving, comforting, and understanding me beyond my wildest dreams. And when I get to loving that and grabbing and say, I think I'll hold on to that a little bit, it just squirts away. And you guys aren't loving, comforting, and understanding me anymore. And I don't get it right until I go right back to praying that prayer. And it's worked in every single human contact that I've ever used. Then give that a try. Because that's just a real practical tool. It's the most powerful tool in human relations that I've ever run into in my life. Uh, you know, prayer says we pray only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out. I have never reached that point. Chuck Chamberlain did. Chuck's prayer was simply that. You know, God give me knowledge of your will and the power to carry it out. Uh, I still pray for God to keep me, you know, get me through the day without drinking, drugging. Still thank God for that. Uh, but it makes it real clear I don't need to be praying for events. I don't need to be confusing hope with faith. You know, when I believe, when I'm trying to have faith that my health will be okay, when I'm trying to have faith that my children will be okay, when I'm trying to have faith that my business will be okay, it ain't going to work, guys. Because that's not subject to faith. That's hope. I'm not dealing with faith until I get to the point where my God and I have got an understanding that regardless of what happens with my health, regardless of what happens with the kids, regardless of what happens with the business, that we're going to be okay. That God's still going to provide regardless of what happens with those things. So I need to, I need to keep it straight that I don't confuse hope with faith because I've done an awful lot of that in my life and when I'm doing that I'm really taking back my third step I'm saying uh, your will is not going to be good enough I'm not going to be alright if your will doesn't contain this particular thing what I'm doing is just taking back that third step I'm saying yeah well most of your will is okay but this is a requirement you know I have a demand here God uh, my demands don't work very well my demands always wind up in disillusionment and disappointment for me uh, <clears throat> we've got uh, the little 11th step promises that I just love on page 88 it says we are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry self-pity or foolish decisions we become much more efficient we do not tire so easily for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life and then we've got the shortest paragraph in the big book it works. It really does. What we're being told there, guys, is that this is not some kind of spiritual theory. This is a practical formula for living my life on a daily basis that will make me an effective person. It will make me effective at my work. It will make me effective in Alcoholics Anonymous. It will make me effective in the relationships with those close to me. This isn't some sort of pie in the sky. This is, this is the design for living. 
uh, my demands don't work very well. My demands always wind up in disillusionment and disappointment for me. Uh, <clears throat> we've got uh, the little 11th step promises that I just love. On page 88, it says, We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life. And then we got the shortest paragraph in the big book. It works. It really does. What we're being told there, guys, is that this is not some kind of spiritual theory. This is a practical formula for living my life on a daily basis that will make me an effective person. It will make me effective at my work. It will make me effective in Alcoholics Anonymous. It will make me effective in the relationships with those close to me. This isn't some sort of pie in the sky. This is, this is the design for living. This is what if I do it on a daily basis, it's going to have an overwhelming practi practical effect uh, on my life. Step 12. We're about to wind up here. Um, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Already talked about, for me, spiritual awakening is not at all mysterious. You know, it's just exactly what it means. It's being awake to spiritual things. Because before I got here, I was comatose to them. I'm now awake to them. And that was my spiritual awakening. It is my spiritual awakening today. Uh, and it, we've all heard this and said it, but it's interesting that it doesn't say as a result of these steps, but it's the result indicating that that's the only real single result that we're guaranteed from the steps, is that we will have a spiritual awakening. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics. Oh, thank you, God and Bill Wilson, for the word carry. Can you imagine what an impossible order that would be if that word were deliver rather than carry? But carry is just the divinely perfect word. And by the way, I haven't said it all day, but I believe that Bill was divinely inspired when the big book was written. Uh, I think the 12 and 12 is a wonderful piece of literature. Uh, I think it's got wonderful ideas in it. Uh, Bill was being sponsored by a psychiatrist at the time he wrote it, but I think it's coming from Bill. Uh, but I believe this big book, just my experience, you can take it or leave it. I believe it was divinely inspired. Because that's what I need to do. I need to carry the message with me. I need to carry it with me. And I'm going to talk before I leave here about big deals, which is a very important thing to me. Big deals are a big deal with me, if I will, if you will. Uh, but, you know, if I make too big, deal, big a deal about what I do in carrying the message, I can't do much. If I'm going to get all emotionally involved with, involved with everybody that I sponsor, that, oh, my God, if I say something wrong, I'll get them drunk, and if I say something right, they'll have this wonderful life, and it's all me, I can't do much. Big deals break my back. That's also true in the rest of life. You can't do that in business. I've been blessed with knowing some really super successful people. You know, I'm talking about super successful people. Those people don't have big deals. Whatever it is, they may be dealing with millions of dollars. They may deal, be dealing with legal cases involving governors or senators. 
Oh, gee, I don't know. Let me look in the book. Let's see what that says. You know, go on, just do the next thing and go right on with it. On the other hand, I've got a half dozen buddies there in Louisville. I just love these guys. A lot of them take the bus down to the courthouse in the morning. They're lawyers. Rear ends are hanging out of their threadbare suits. They're down there to hang around traffic court and try to snag 10 or $20 for somebody that's charged with a traffic thing. And I, I truly do know and love these guys. And I guarantee you, I can call any one of them aside and say, hey, come here. What's going on? I guarantee you they're eat up with big deals. Just absolutely eaten up with them. You see, big deals break my back. Big deals break my back. Anytime I make a big deal out of anything that is not God and not these 12 steps, what I'm really making a big deal out of is me. And when I do that, I'm back into ego and I'm back into alcoholism. And it took me years to understand that that includes my health, that includes my kids, that includes my money. It even includes sex. You know, that any time I make a big deal out of anything other than God and these 12 steps, when I really follow it back, what I'm making a big deal out of is me. And when I've done that, I'm back into ego and I'm back into alcoholism. So I need to just carry that message with me. I also need to understand that uh, I don't need to be giving somebody the finger in traffic because I don't know who's looking. You see, whether I like it or not, I'm a billboard for my God. And I'm a billboard for Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's real important what people see in me. We impact people's lives that we never know that we impact their lives. We don't need to make big deals. We need to just try real hard to do the next right thing. But we need, or I need to keep that in mind. A real good little thing for me to keep in mind is that if what I'm getting ready to say or do were on the front page of my local morning paper the next morning, would it be a disaster? Now, we all do private things that we don't want on the front page of the paper, but would it be a disaster? If it would be, I probably better not say it or do it. Not that it's likely to be there necessarily, it's just that that's a real good test. If I'm living my life in such a way that it can't be open, that it would be a disaster if it was on the front page of the paper, then I better not do it. Um, in sponsoring, anybody who sponsors me, the first word out of my mouth, is, or asks me to sponsor them, the first word out of my mouth is yes. Uh, if Cherry Carpenter had turned me down, uh, I may have been dead now. Uh, and I know we'll, I know for a fact Cherry didn't like me worth a hoot when I asked him to sponsor me. I didn't like Cherry either. Uh, that's another thing that I want to say about sponsorship is that I've, I've quoted Cherry so many times, and I believe you can tell how important he's been in my life. I never rode in a car with Cherry Carpenter. I never shared a meal with Cherry Carpenter. The man never called me one time except to return my telephone calls. But he always did that. And I said Cherry didn't like me, and I didn't like him when I asked him to be my sponsor. And the truth is, Cherry and I never get get where we were real wild about one another. And yet he's the second most important man in my life with the possible exception of my father. Because Cherry was what I believe a sponsor needs to be. He was a guide through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was always there for me. He never failed to be there for me. He never failed to tell me the truth. He never failed to give me good sound input on what the steps had been in his life and how he had applied the steps in his life. 
And I believe that's sponsorship. I also tell people that ask me to sponsor, that, that ask me to sponsor them these days, I say, hey, especially if you're new in sobriety, you may need to get in somebody's pocket, and i got to be realistic, I don't have a pocket left. You need to have somebody else, whether you want to call them a sponsor or not, that you can go to meetings with on a daily basis that you can truly get in their pocket. But I always tell them, yeah, I'll be your sponsor. I'll go through these steps here with you, and I'll be available. I'll be available for you. Now, Bernie Filiatro. Bernie died four years ago. Bernie was my Louisville sponsor. I, for most of my sobriety, I've had two sponsors. It was Bernie in Louisville. Bernie was my sponsor for 16 years before he died. Uh, it was Bernie in Louisville, and then I had Cherry in Nashville. And when Cherry died, I got Tom, who I have now in, uh, in, in uh, right outside of Cleveland. Uh, <coughs> Bernie and I, on the other hand, became great friends, became best friends. Bernie and I would loan one another money, uh, and that worked fine, and that was good. But, you know, I needed the Cherry Carpenter, Tom Burns kind of sponsor, too. Because, you see, if I went to whining about finances, old Bernie loved me so much and was my buddy that he was apt to say, gosh, Don, what can we do to get you the money? That's awful. I have often wondered what would have happened if I had asked Cherry Carpenter to borrow $5. It would not have been pretty, I'm here to tell you. You know, I, 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 I need somebody to say, well, that'll work out. If you let your comfort depend on it, you'll be uncomfortable anyway, regardless of whether you get the money or not. You know, pray about it. Take some positive action. Go to a meeting. Is your apartment clean? You're going to be miserable if your apartment's dirty. What's that got to do with me needing this money? Clean up your apartment if you want to be comfortable. You know, you can't be comfortable in a dirty apartment. <laughs> I need somebody to point those things out and turn me right back to the steps. And and that uh, <coughs> sponsorship is a beautiful thing. I love it. Uh, I think it's real necessary. If you haven't got a sponsor, get one. The point I'm trying to make in telling you that Cherry and I weren't great friends, a, sponsor, a sponsorship relationship is not a marriage, for heaven's sakes. Uh, get somebody that's been through the steps, that seems to have some things you want with regard to recovery. There aren't any perfect sponsors out there. We're all out of them. So quit looking for the perfect one. Go ahead and ask somebody to be a sponsor and have a sponsor. Also, in having a sponsor, uh, you know, Cherry had wonderful, wonderful stuff. He was a circuit speaker, and the people quote Cherry all over the country. He had wonderful stuff to say. But I believe that 1% of Cherry Carpenter's value to me was the quality of what he had to say. I believe that 99% of Cherry's value to me was my willingness to have a sponsor and to do what that sponsor suggested of acting out that humility. So, sure, don't choose somebody that's apt to be running their mouth about you. Don't choose somebody who's apt drink, or looks like they might drink, we all possibly would drink, don't choose somebody that hadn't done the steps or that you don't know has done the steps. But don't make a big project of it either. It's not a marriage. You know, ask them to be a temporary sponsor. Get somebody there that can function as a sponsor and go on with that. Um, practice these principles in all our affairs. And I'm going to wind up by talking about that a few minutes. And this may be kind of disjointed, but I'm just going to talk about some things that have been really, really important in, in my life. I've already talked about the big deals. There's been nothing more important than that. That is so hard to keep straight. When I was uh, 
just turning two years sober, I'd gotten back to Louisville, and my friend Billy H., who claims I'm his sponsor, although he's been sober a little longer than I have, and I, at the time, were practicing law together. Was that ever a mess? That was a real experiment. Uh, and uh, I couldn't have brought a loaf of bread in cre- on credit, so we formed a little company to get me a car uh, and called it No Bad for No Big Deals. So that was, you know, 20 years ago that we were already so aware of the need to not have big deals in our lives. Ten years after that, Billy and I were talking on the phone one morning, and we could put on a real good effective argument that you couldn't prove that what we were saying was, you know, all this stress in our lives is just a natural part of the fact that we are such high-profile professionals and member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just one of those deals where to whom much is given, much is asked, and the stress is just necessarily part of the territory. We both started laughing because it hit us. Here, ten years after we'd formed No Bad, it hit us that stress is impossible unless I've made a big deal out of something that is not God and not these 12 steps, and therefore a big deal out of myself. And I want to tell you, that's made a big difference in my life, because for the last 12, 10, 12 years, when I feel stressed, it's no longer part of the territory. It's no longer inevitable. It's a spiritual mistake, and I know what it is. I know I'm making a big deal out of something that's not God and not these 12 steps. And you know, I don't have any switches to flip to make me feel like those things are not big deals. But I found out that if I'll act like a fellow would act if he didn't feel like they were big deals, that works just fine. You see, I don't make a big deal out of something, or I don't prioritize something by how I feel about it and what I think about it. I used to think I did. I used to thought if I felt like it was a priority, it was a priority. That's crap. I prioritize things by what I do. doesn't make a bit of difference how important I think something else is. What I'm doing is what I give my priority to. That is my priority. So all I need to do is just act like a fellow would act if he believed that any time he made a big deal out of anything other than God and the 12 steps, what he was making a big deal out of was him. <clears throat> you know, I found out that... Uh, and I was a pretty fiery lawyer the first 10 years of my law practice. I've really had two. I haven't talked about the wreck I had in the five years I was out of practice. I'll do that during my story. But I had two careers, one from 1968 to 1978 and then from, from 1983 to now. Uh, during that first career, I had a lot of, of material success, and I was a real fiery low trial lawyer. Uh, I have not raised my voice in or out of a courtroom for almost 20 years. And I want to tell you that it has served me just beautifully. I don't need to go through hysterics. I don't need to raise my voice. Do I feel anger? Absolutely. Do I ever feel like saying something like, you know, you were stupid in law school 35 years ago and that black robe seems to just somehow embellished your stupidity. I cannot imagine how you could be that dumb. Uh, sure, I feel like saying those things, but I don't. You know, I don't. And whatever I do, I may, I'm blessed with being able to do it quietly, and you know it works so much better. I don't need to be raising my voice in any circumstance today. Uh, you know, 
I already talked about the fact that my fear of prayer needs to be for me. God give me the strength to act in spite of my fear because if I keep expecting it to go away so I can act, it's not going to happen. I have learned that in my, in my business of practicing law, and I think it's true in a whole lot of things in life. You know, intelligence has got some importance. Industriousness has got some importance in, in whether you succeed or not. All those things do. But none of them are nearly as important as the willingness to act in the face of fear. The people who really succeed in almost anything are the ones who are willing to act in the face of fear. So that helps me so much in my daily life. Uh, now, I've always viewed my successes, and I'm going to use some sports metaphors here. I really do love baseball, but, but I have always viewed my successes as my team being down by three runs and it being the bottom of the ninth, the bases are loaded, and I hit that home run just on a frozen rope, a line drive, you know, into the stands, and that's the way I envision my success. The reality of my success has been putting on the uniform when I thought it would probably rain and there wouldn't be a game, not being satisfied with how the uniform looked, showing up every day where I was supposed to show up, not starting in the game, finally getting put in, practically missing the ball and breaking my bat and just looping it over the second baseman's head, a broken bat single. That's how my, that, that's how my successes have come about by a series of broken bat singles. It hadn't ever one time happened the way I see it. You know, making financial amends, my natural thought was I'll get the money and put it in a brown paper bag and go in, here's your damn money. You know, some interest in there too for you, you greedy SOB. Uh, <laughs> didn't work that way. It was $25 a month here, $50 a month there, $15 a month there little bit at a time, broken bat singles, just keep coming back. And when I look around the people that I've known in my lifetime, and of course, at this stage of my life, my contemporaries, we pretty well know how they're going to do as far as the material world goes. The guys that succeeded aren't the hot shots. They're not the ones that are rich. The hot shots are still flim-flamming and coming up with big deals. The ones that are rich are the dull guys. They're the ones that showed up every day doing the same thing, kept doing the same thing, kept doing it over and over, got good at it, made themselves available for the good things to happen, kept on trying to help other people. You know, you, we used to joke that the Presbyterians thought there would be a, a an entrance fee to heaven to keep the riffraff out uh, because they, they said it was always sort of a, a feeling that the Calvinistic principles equated material success with godliness. Um, and I used to think that was so wrong and stupid. That's not stupid at all. Because, you know, if you think about it, there is nothing in this world that we get paid for. Nothing. Other than providing other people with something they either want or need. Absolutely nothing we get paid for other than that. So you see, if we are truly approaching it, that what we are trying to do is help God's kids do what they need to have done for free and for fun because we want to, Financial success is almost inevitable. It's almost inevitable. It's a law of the universe because we are doing that thing which is the only thing for which we ever get money anyway. And that's providing other people with something they want or something they need. Uh, I've mentioned unbade beds a couple of times and I mention it again just because it's so important to me. Um, I'm not talking about physical bed, although I do make the bed every morning. Even if Sharon and I have been married, I'm not worth a hoot for the rest of the house works. I'm not telling you that. 
But I make that bed every morning. That's real important to me. And it's always been a symbol for me. And I use it as a symbol for whatever is out of order in my life. If there's something out of order in my life, and I'm uncomfortable because that's out of order. In other words, I don't feel like making the bed. Man, I'm worried my sponsor to death and dominate discussion meetings and get outside counseling about making me feel like making that bed so I, so I can make it. I will get no relief until I make the damn bed. Doesn't matter what else I do, I will have to make the bed. My God does for me many things that I can't do for myself. My God doesn't do a whole lot for me that I can do for myself. You know, I'm expected to do that. Uh, let me talk a little bit about forgiveness. Forgiveness is, has been real important in my sobriety. Um, I thought I was real forgiving um, in sobriety. I have a situation in my life where my, my daughter, my, my blood daughter, uh, was uh, didn't find it out until I'd been sober a couple of years and after the fact, but she was systematically and regularly over a period from time she was four to eleven very severely sexually abused by a family member first place i'm glad i was sober when i found it out uh, a family member involved in that about ten years ago was laying on what we all believed was a deathbed and asked for me to come man i thought i couldn't go i thought it'd be disloyal to my daughter I thought what had been done there was absolutely unforgivable, beyond the be beyond the pale of forgiveness. So I thought I couldn't, I thought I shouldn't go. But I wasn't all I wasn't real comfortable with that. So I prayed and I talked to people. And it hit me that at the close of our meetings we hold hands and I ask my God to forgive me by just precisely the same standards that I forgive other people. Just precisely. And I want to tell you something. I'm too far gone to put any limits on my God's forgiveness of me. So what I'm asking God to do is, hey, if I limit my my forgiveness to other people, then I want you to limit your forgiveness to me. And it turns out that if I'm only forgiving up to a point, but I'm real forgiving up to that point, but damn you, if you step across that line, I'll not forgive you because that's unforgivable. I am totally unforgiving because I have reserved for myself the right to draw the line beyond which I will not forgive. It's just like honesty. If I'll lie, if the pressure gets bad enough, I am dishonest. I'm not partly honest. I am dishonest. If I'll lie, if the pressure gets bad enough. And if I won't forgive you, if your acts are bad enough, then I'm unforgiving. Well, my next action is, my God, I can't forgive that. That's when I was told, go to the bedside and act out forgiveness. And I did. I went down there and I acted like somebody would act if they forgiven, if they'd forgiven, and it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing for me to do. Because you see, the bottom line is kind of like that tolerance deal that all I've really got to tolerate is the intolerable. You know, if it just aggravates me a little bit, if I want to be a little uncomfortable, I don't have to tolerate. It's only when it's intolerable that if I want to live and be comfortable, I must tolerate it. It's only when it's unforgivable that I must forgive it. Now, the feeling of forgiveness, I have a feeling of largely being at peace with that. 
That's not, uh, the, don't confuse forgiveness with, uh, uh, don't confuse it with approval. Don't even necessarily refuse, uh, confuse the, con, the forgiveness with even acceptance. Forgiveness is something else, and forgiveness is actions. And I found out that I need to be willing to act those actions out in any situation. <clears throat> when I go down to work and I try to outthink, outperform, and outmaneuver, I wind up in the snake pit every time. There's nothing bad about that. That's, you know, that's an okay thing to do. I'm not talking about being dishonest. I'm not talking about cheating people. I'm just talking about going down there and trying to use my brain and outthink them, outmaneuver them, you know, and, uh, and that sort of thing. Doesn't work. Absolutely doesn't work. My friend Billy and I talk about this all the time. We joke, and he, I mentioned him earlier. He's a lawyer, too. And, and Billy doesn't mind me saying this. He talks about it when he talks. He talks at a lot of conferences. Billy has trouble with that. Every legal situation for Billy is a war. He is absolutely at war. And because he calls it that way, Billy lives. He actually lives in a state of war. Uh, I don't live in a state of war. Hey, I, I don't win cases. I don't lose cases. I used to, but I don't win them or I don't lose them anymore. I'm just a little bitty cog in a great big wheel of justice. I've got a job to do. I need to do it honestly. My job is to be an advocate within the bounds of, of ethics and honesty, but to be an advocate as zealous as I can be within those bounds. And when I'll go in and just try to help God's kids do what I need to have, what they need to have done for free and for fun, because I want to, and try to do that next right thing. It just works beautifully. Uh, I can't figure out who I need to help. Uh, I need to help the ones that God puts in my path. I don't need to say, you know, this one smells too much like alcohol, or my God, this one's been in and out of the program for 20 years. I'm not going to waste my time with him or her. I need to just be willing to help whoever God puts in my life. I've always gone to four or five meetings a week sober, and I need to go to those meetings. Uh, something that we say around Louisville that I really like is that uh, we are too busy not to go to meetings uh, because obviously the natural thing is think we're too busy to get to meetings. And, and there's something magic about meetings. They expand time and energy. And the busier I get, the more things I've got whirling around in my head, the more desperately I need to get to my meetings. The more efficient it'll make me, the more... The more better it will make, it'll make me better in dealing with all those things. It will somehow magically expand my time and my energy. Uh, I try to live the, uh, the, uh, tradition of attraction, not promotion in my life. I think that's a very important thing. I don't, I never try to preach AA. I never try to push it down anybody's throat because I truly believe with all my heart that attraction, not promotion, is the right way. And that's not just limited to AA. I try not to promote myself as a lawyer. I try not to promote myself as anything. I try to just do that next right thing, and if attraction happens, let it happen, and it works a whole lot better. I've already talked about trying not to be controversial and how much better things go for me when I keep in mind that unless there's some really good reason for doing it, I don't need to be involved in controversy. In fact, I've got a personal thing that I say, and everybody laughs and thinks it's a joke, but it's not really a joke. If I'm going to argue with somebody and make my belly hurt, somebody's going to pay me. I'm not going to do that for free. 
You know, I'm going to be doing it in the courtroom and I'm going to be doing it for a fee. I'm not going to get involved in a controversy with you for nothing because I don't want my belly hurting and I'm just simply not going to do it. Uh, my decision-making process is something I had to get, uh, I had to get uh, a different view on. First few years I was sober, I'd lay around, man, agonize over these big decisions. You know, I, I think I thought God had the universe set up like a game show. And if I guessed the right square, I'd get trips to Acapulco and stuff. And if I guessed the wrong square, I'd get dragons. Uh, well, God hadn't got the universe set up that way. It was just another way of my ego manifesting itself by blowing my little old decision-making process out of portion. You see, if I've got a good faith decision, and, you know, whether to go to a meeting or rob a liquor store is probably not a good faith decision. But if I've discussed it with other people, I've prayed about it, I've gotten in a room by myself and drawn that line down a piece of paper and written why I should go one way on one side and the other way on the other, and I still can't tell which way to go, it's it simple. Whichever way I go, if I do God's will a step at a time, if I do the right stitching, everything will be great. Whichever way I go, if I don't do that, it's going to turn to a bucket of crap. So working backwards from that, what's the big deal about my little decision-making process? Doesn't make any difference which way I go. It simply makes difference how I stitch after I start down that direction. And, and that made things simply, simpler for me. Um, I believe that the quiet love and truth is the most powerful force on earth. I found that to be true in a courtroom. I also believe that it's true in human relations. The simple quiet loving truth. Most powerful force on the face of this earth. Uh, definition of a lie that I was given and that works really well for me was given to me by Cherry Carpenter. And that is that if I intend for somebody to come to believe or to continue to believe that a fact is different than I know it to be, I'm lying whether I've opened my mouth or not. And that's a real good definition for me. Number one, I'm not bound to tell you what my opinions are, guys. And I'm going to tell you point blank. Ladies, if one of y'all comes up to me with a hideous dress on and asks me if that dress is ugly, I am going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you that in my opinion that dress is hideous because my opinions are not facts. And I don't necessarily, you know, the honesty without compassion is not honesty. It's veiled hostility. You know, I have to temper compassion in there. Now, I'm not being soft because on any fact, on any fact, I've got to be rigorously honest. I've got to be rigorously honest. And I can lie to you without opening my mouth. And I don't need to do that. But I need to keep in mind that, that it's only the facts that I don't necessarily have to share with anybody necessarily, so if there's circumstances where I really need to share what I feel and the circumstances where it would be real dishonest not to do that, it would be harmful to the other person. But in general, with regard to facts, I need to be real, real strict about that and real rigorous. Uh, simplifying my life, I want to tell you that I have made lists that would take up an entire legal pad about simplifying my life. Uh, I have prayed about simplifying my life. I've gotten outside counseling on simplifying my life. The only way I've ever found to simplify my life is just one second at a time. I find out that on about 90% of the choices that I have in a day's time, there's a way that I can go that is simpler and there's a way that I can go that's more complex. 
and it won't make any real difference to anybody else which way I go. I found out that 90% of the time with no negativity, I can leave the uh, phone call and leave the ball in the other person's court. If somebody asks me if I'm going to do something, and I know I don't want to do it, and I know I'm probably going to wallow around for a week and come back and say I had to do something else, I couldn't do it, and go ahead and tell them no. And my life's a whole lot less complicated when I do that. So if I'll just try to take the less complicated turn at every little turn in my life, my life winds up being simpler than I could ever imagine it to be. I do best by viewing myself as a Western Union. How many minutes have I got, Lee? We got, I'm done in five minutes. By viewing myself as a Western Union messenger boy, I'm just running around on a bicycle with one of those 1930s you know, Western Union suits on. You know, that messenger boy doesn't have any responsibilities for the content of the message and no responsibility for the reaction of the person receiving the message. You see, I never create the truth. God knows I've tried. But at any given time, I can't create the truth. The truth just is. And I'm not responsible for your reaction to it. My job is the quiet and loving delivery of that truth. And I'm limited. That imagine what a hell the Western Union boy's life would be if he took responsibility for the content of the message and the reaction to it. So I need to just pedal around wherever I'm going doing that. Uh, I need to suit up and show up. Uh, I do believe that in many ways about as, about as uh, spiritual as I'm going to get is returning my phone calls and showing up where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be that. I believe there's a lot more spirituality in that than in contemplating my belly button. Uh, one last thing that I want to say has got to do with bad hands. Uh, that same weekend in, in May of 1990 when I was in Cleveland, uh, there was an old boy up there that was sober 20 years or at least dry, had spent the last 10 or 12 in Las Vegas living underground and playing poker for a living. Not real admirable. Jim told me he's dead now. He said, Don, there are tens of thousands of people that want to make a living out of playing poker, but there's just a handful of people that can do it. He said, let me tell you what the difference is. He said, anybody can play the good hands to perfection. Any idiot can do that. The difference between success and failure is what you do with the bad hands. And I found out that that's true in every area of my life. Those cards that I want to throw back in and not deal with and get away from, I don't care what area of my life it ends, that's the hand that what I do with it is going to wind up making the difference between success and failure. I love every one of you, and thank you so much for putting up with me so long. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.